When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my friends. Welcome back to Unshaken. Jared Halverson here, grateful as always to spend time with you in Scripture. Today, we've only got two chapters to cover. Uh, if you've been overwhelmed by long lessons lately uh, with lots of chapters to discuss, today we only have two, Matthew chapter 18 and Luke chapter 10. And these two are wonderful. Matthew 18 is where we'll find the, the famous parable of the unmerciful servant. And Luke 10 has the even more famous parable of the Good Samaritan. So we've been spending a lot of time with Jesus do, watching him do things. Uh, the Mount of Transfiguration, healing the son of this desperate father, uh, discussing things with the apostles at Caesarea Philippi, uh, a lot of action on the part of the Savior. Today we'll see some more teaching on his part. And we're getting closer and closer to more and more parables that we'll see in the book of Luke, more in Matthew. Uh, there's some, some powerful things ahead. And we're moving in that direction today with Matthew chapter 18 and Luke chapter 10. Now to get there, let me set the stage though, because we're not quite ready for those parables. There's some other teaching that Jesus needs to do first. And the first thing he's going to do today is, is lay something to rest, or at least attempt to. This is a problem that never completely goes away. Uh, and it's the problem of pride. Uh, my family is a huge sports family, and if there's one thing where, where pride takes place, it's in sports. Because it is inherently com competitive, and we're competing. We want to see who's the best of them all. Who's the fairest in all the land, right? We even have fairy tales about that. Well, today we're going to see some, some stories about that. And the problem of comparison and competition, because it tends to rank people and divide them, if you're a sports fan, you probably have your favorite team. And of course, it's better than the, its, com its competitors. Uh, so maybe you, you've gotten into the habit of ranking the, the greatest of all time. Who's the GOAT? The G-O-A-T, greatest of all time. And what are the best teams? We, I mean, we just finished March Madness. We've, uh, we're in the middle of the NBA, final, uh, NBA playoffs now. And, and you can't help but start ranking the greatest players that have ever played the game. And that can, that can be fun, except for the fact that so often it leads to the kinds of prideful divisiveness that causes problems. President Nelson just sat us all down and gave us a, a, a stern caution against contention. His talk in conference was amazing. Uh, it reminded me of Jesus when he comes among the Nephites in 3 Nephi. And among the first things he says in 3 Nephi 11 is you've got to stop disputing about things. Even good things. The way you're going about it is all wrong. Contention is not of me, he says. Contention is of the devil. He's the father of that. So don't, don't join that side of the family. Join the family of the Prince of Peace and be a peacemaker. Now, that's what he's going to start with today. And several of the examples uh, and the parables that he'll teach us later can still fall under that same general heading of how do we treat people that, we, that are different from us? How do we look at them down our noses as if they were inferior to us? 
Or can we get to the point where we are of one heart and one mind, a Zion among us? Well, notice the comparison that starts the story. Matthew chapter 18, verse 1. At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, at the same time, well, that means it's right on the heels of the transfiguration. Maybe it's Peter, James, and John coming down going, We got to meet our heroes! Moses and Elijah, the greatest of the prophets. And others were like, what are you talking about? What about Elisha? He was just as good as Elijah. And what about Abraham, father of the faithful? And oh, great. Now are we going to do a ranking of, of the, the greatest prophets of all time? Or maybe it's the fact that Peter, James, and John were called up the mount when the other nine were left down in the valley below to fail at trying to heal this boy that was, that was suffering. Is there dissension in the ranks? And the nine are wondering, what do those three have that we don't have? Evidently, that's part of the problem, since they're wondering who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And, and they're, they're referring to themselves in the question. At least that's what we get in, in the Mark version of this. Mark, I think I mentioned this to you when we were starting the, this year and comparing the gospel writers. Mark's is the most raw of the four gospels. And the apostles look the worst in the book of Mark, okay? So if you want to see a raw reality and just see them in all their, their humanity, uh, then, then look at the book of Mark. And notice how this story is described here. This is Mark chapter 9, verse 33 and 34. And he, Jesus, came to Capernaum, and being in the house... So this is behind closed doors. That's often where correction will take place. Jesus doesn't want to do it in front of, in front of the public. Okay? But behind those closed doors, he asked them, What was it that ye disputed among yourselves, by the way? But they held their peace. <laughs> JST even adds, Being afraid. Like, uh-oh, he heard us? I told you we're talking too loud, Thaddeus. Uh, or, yeah, the, the sons of thunder were thundering about how much more important they were than the rest of us. Jesus knew it. Okay? He knew that they were disputing along the way. For by the way, Mark tells us, they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. And the JST clarifies it, who should be the greatest among them. So this really is dissension in the ranks. This really is... Can you rank the 12 apostles? I mean, we, we put them in order in our day, but only in order of seniority, not in order of, of popularity, not in order of priority. Uh, no, there's no other order other than seniority. And they're all equal within the first presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve. What's interesting here in the Luke version, it simply says that they're reasoning among themselves. So just kind of talking it over, or maybe just thinking in themselves, like, you know, Peter, James, and John feeling like, well, he did pull us aside, so we must be preeminent among the other 12. And then others going, hmm, who, who did he pick first? Maybe that's how we were going to rank ourselves. Or maybe who gave up the most to follow him? Or who was the most successful on these little two-by-two -two missions he's been, been sending us out on? There are so many ways to, to rank and to compare. And they're guilty of it. They're, but again, in, in Luke, they're just reasoning. In Mark, it comes down to actual contention. They're disputing. They're getting prideful about their pride. And which one of us is the best? We're going to see more of these problems later on. But the whole issue reminds me of my first day as a seminary teacher. Actually, my first few minutes 
uh, I had gone through all the hoops, and I was there in the church's office, church office building as a new hire, ready to start filling out some paperwork. I don't remember the paperwork I filled out, but I do remember the counsel I was given because it has blessed me for the 25 years since I received it. This administrator in church education said, welcome to the team, welcome to the family. And I hope you know that it is a family and not to feel that way. And in order to keep it that way, please beware the four C's. And these four C's have stuck with me for a quarter century. He said, do not compare. Do not compete, do not criticize, and do not complain. That's good counsel. It's interesting to be a teacher and to be on a faculty and have other teachers among, uh, with you and, and students, especially teenagers, that are kind of filing off for one teacher or another. How can you not compare? You've got to overcome it. You certainly need to overcome it before comparison leads to competition because that will often lead to criticism and complaint. It leads to contention. And that's what the Lord was condemning in 3 Nephi. Not just in chapter 11 when he comes, but two more rounds of it later in his ministry among the Nephites. These were good people arguing over good things, but they weren't going about it in a good way. And again, that's what President Nelson just warned us about. We have to overcome those four C's ourselves, And to help them do it, Jesus is going to bring out a visual aid to answer their question that they're disputing over. This continues the Mark account. Chapter 9, verse 35. He sat down and called the twelve and saith unto them, If any man desire to be first, and that's what they've all been fighting over, well, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. And that's exactly what Jesus has been modeling his entire mortal ministry. He'll do it again most dramatically at the Last Supper when he, obviously chief of all, I mean, there's no, <laughs> there's no denying that he is the greatest of all time, but he acts as a servant and washes their feet. The chief among them becomes servant of all. If you would be first, then you must make yourself last. It's one of those beautiful paradoxes in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Jesus is exhibit A in this, but then he provides exhibit B. And he took a child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, I love the tenderness of this scene. It's not just that Jesus takes this little boy and sets him in the middle and has all eyes on him. No, he brings him out, but then takes him in his arms. In the process, what would he have just done? Lifted this little boy to his level. Think about what he's doing here visually. Children are looked down upon, literally. They're short. <laughs> How can we help it? Well, we can help it either by getting down on their level, lowering ourselves so we can see them eye to eye. When I, I'm, I have the best calling in the church right now. I get to teach the sunbeams. Three is my favorite age. I keep telling my children that. You reached your greatest level of cuteness at age three, and the rest of life is just downhill. I'm sorry. But with my cute little sunbeams, I actually like sitting in the little chairs with them. <laughs> you know how it is in primary. The little chairs for the kids and the big chairs for the adults or the older kids. Oh, just all on the same level. Or sitting on the floor so we can color together. Uh, kneeling down next to them so I can see them eye to eye. There's something powerful there about unity and oneness. 
The other way of instead of you coming down to their level is you lift them up to yours. And that seems to be what Jesus is doing. He takes him in his arms. Apostles, don't look down at this short little boy. Lift him. Look up to him. See him as your equal. In fact, if you're fighting over superiority, see him as your superior. Because this is the... It's people like this little boy that are the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. How does that, how does that make you feel? You little goat, <laughs> right? Greatest of all time. Now, what's interesting here is what the Lord says next. So he's taken this child, he's in his, holding him in his arms, and then he says to his apostles, Whosoever shall receive one of such children in my name, receiveth me. Whosoever shall receive me, receiveth not me, but him that sent me. He'll say the same thing in the Oath and Covenant of the Priesthood in Doctrine and Covenants 84. If you receive those that I've sent, my servants, then it's as if you're receiving me, right? Whether by my own voice or the voice of my servants, it is the same. And if you receive me, then you receive the Father. And if you receive the Father, you receive all that the Father hath. That's what he wants to give you. But it starts with being humble enough. You see, if it's just, how do I get all that God has? Ooh, careful. That's, that's Lucifer in premortality. That is pride. Uh, that's not what we're after. Instead, it's, can I be humble enough to accept anyone the Lord sends? Well, that's the type of person with whom God can trust all that he has. Because that person's going to be giving all he has to others, just like the Father intends to do. So, are you open to receiving mere mortals as your leaders? Can you go talk to a bishop, even though they're on the same level as you are? Are you willing to speak to oh, a counselor in the Relief Society Presidency or the Elders Quorum Presidency or only the president will do? How about your ministering sister or brother? We, will you go to a mere mortal to receive a patriarchal blessing? Are we, because what's amazing here is the Lord takes it down even other, further notches. How about a little child? Are you willing to learn from someone when out of the mouth of babes, wisdom comes forth. That's the kind of humility the Lord is asking us for. And, and to be willing to receive little children in that humble way speaks volumes of the kind of person we happen to be. I may have mentioned this before, but I love the example uh, that my Uncle Mike had told me when he first went to Canada to meet his, his potential in-laws. He was falling in love with Aunt Laurie and went to Canada to meet her family. And they went to church together. And what blew him away as they walked into the chapel, in the foyer, Laurie, who was home for, from college, got swarmed by little children. And, and so excited to see, like, oh, you're back from college. And then shortly thereafter, though not at the same speed, <laughs> the old timers in the ward started shuffling out to see young Laurie coming back from college. And Mike said he just sat there in awe. What, what does it say about this girl that I'm falling in love with? That the people that love her and therefore must have felt loved by her are the types of people that don't seem to add much to your mortal reputation. Little kids, oh, don't they just make demands on your time? And old people, oh, what do they know? Uh, more than you think. But for someone to be humble enough 
to learn from the very young and to receive the wisdom of the very old. That was Aunt Laurie. And Mike saw it and was amazed. That's what the Lord is, at, is hoping to see in all of us. Are you humble enough to learn from the humble? Then he says this in the Matthew version. Back to Matthew 18, it's not just receiving little children. It's being childlike as we do so. So in Matthew 18, verse 2 through 4, same what we just saw in Mark. Jesus called a little child unto him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I mean, that was your question originally, right? Who's greatest in the kingdom? Let me show you this little child. And anyone that can keep up with him or catch up to him. That's, that's what we're looking for. Childlikeness. Isn't that what King Benjamin was after? When he was hoping to be able to have this life-changing experience with people that would fully convert to the Lord and become his sons and daughters? Ooh, that's children. Will you be willing to submit to all things, even as a child is willing to submit to his father? Humble and, and meek, lowly, childlike. So what, that's what we're supposed to become. Notice also he said you have to be converted and become as little children. I can picture them going, whoa, whoa, converted? We've been following you for two years plus by now. We're converted. And him kind of smiling and looking through them like he did with the father of the boy last week. Oh, yes, you believe, but you've still got some unbelief. Yes, you have a testimony. But are you fully converted? Because conversion suggests some kind of transformation. You just saw me transformed, transfigured. Am I seeing that in you? Because once you become converted, and it's conversion up spiritually, but conversion down in terms of humility, becoming like a little child, that's what I'm after. And the fact that you're arguing over preeminence lets me know how much how far you are from where you need to be, how much more conversion is required of you. Now, please notice, by the way, the way the Lord phrases this, because he's, he's serious here. This isn't just some like, you know, you're doing great stuff, but it sure would be nice if you became a little more humble. No, his phrasing there, if you don't become this, if you don't become as a little child, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Compare that to what Jesus says to Nicodemus back in John chapter 3. Remember when he talks about being born again? And he says, if you are not born of water and of the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. That same stark reality. Just like the language he uses here. But the difference is, in the John 3 version, he's talking about ordinances. In the Matthew 18 version, he's talking about attributes. Now, which do we tend to take more seriously? We are dead serious about ordinances. To the point we perform them for the dead. We will make sure that every single child of God has the opportunity to accept the ordinances because we know that without them, they cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Then why don't we take the development of Christ-like attributes just as seriously? Now, I'm not saying that we can perform, we can perform ordinances for the dead. We can't gain attributes for the dead, right? That's on them. But it's also on us to develop them within ourselves. 
And if I don't, then I cannot enter into the kingdom of God. All the ordinances notwithstanding. Does that make sense? I've heard sometimes of people in really difficult marriages where one person is trying to live the gospel and the other person is absolutely not. And sometimes the faithful one is concerned, uh-oh, we were sealed in the temple. I'm going to be stuck with him in the next life. To which I always say, well, you had the ordinance, but he doesn't have the attributes. He's not going to be dragged kicking and screaming into the celestial kingdom with him kicking and screaming at you. No. I've even told my students sometimes, what's required of an, eternal, of an eternal family? And they'll say, oh, eternal marriage. I'm like, okay, let's be more specific. It requires two things, an eternal wedding followed by an eternal marriage. And sometimes they'll go, what's the difference? Well, think about it. How long does an eternal wedding take place? I mean, the wedding is like half an hour, okay? It's in the temple, absolutely required. Proper authority, right? Keys of the kingdom, bind on earth, have it bound in heaven. You've got to have that. That's the ordinance side. Without it, you cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven with your companion. But that's just the celestial wedding. The celestial marriage is what comes after. And it lasts a long time. At least it's supposed to. That's where the attributes come in. Are you living celestially with one another? You understand the difference? If we take the ordinances so seriously... I pray we take the development of those attributes just as seriously. That's what the Lord is asking. It's what he's commanding us all to do, to be. Now, if we want to continue in the Matthew version, we will next see him condemn those who offend little ones. We're still, it's still a child there in the Savior's arms as Exhibit A. But in the Mark version, there's a few other things we need to cover before we get there. Mark's going to get there as well, okay? And the way he says it is even stronger than what we saw, that we're, than what we see in Matthew. But a couple of small things that happen on the way. Look at Mark chapter 9, verse 38 to 40. And here we have John speaking up, as in Peter, James, and John. Now, John answers Jesus, saying, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and he followeth not us. And so we forbade him, because he followeth not us. Now, Jesus said, forbid him not, for there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me. And then these famous words, for he that is not against us is on our part. Now, I did mention these words, kind of a preview in a previous lesson, when the opposite was being said. At a time when Jesus said, hey, if you're not with me, then you're against me, which is the exact contrary of what he says here. Well, if you're not against me, then you're with me. How does that work? In that prior lesson, we talked about the difference in context. That Then it was oppositional, and he was among enemies. And so to say, hey, if you're not on my side, then you're with the enemy. So choose you this day whom you will serve. But this time he's among friends. Different context. And speaking of context, he's in the middle of talking about not comparing or competing John, did you not pay attention to the last lesson? And here you are still comparing yourself to, to outsiders, but they're not, they're not among us. Well, they are doing it in my name. So they, they're more like you than you realize. They're just not among the 12. They're not, it's hard to know exactly their, their position, their identity, their allegiances. 
the fact that they are casting out devils in the name of Christ, but not following the other apostles of Christ. I, again, I don't totally understand how that all works. But what I love about this moment is in the middle of conversations about overcoming comparison and competition and contention. That's where he, he makes it more expansive. And instead of the, hey, if you're not with me, you're against me. It's the much more inclusive, as long as you're not against me, then we're on the same side. I honestly wish that fellow Christians would honor that verse when they accuse Latter-day Saints of not being Christians at all. We are doing things in the name of Christ, even if traditional Christianity doesn't agree with all of our doctrines. To me, it's, it's sad when someone says, well, they're, let's forbid them. Let's compare and compete and contend and say they have nothing to do with Jesus because they don't have anything to do with us. Like I said, I wish they were a little bit more close to this verse in understanding we're trying to be on Jesus' side. And if I wish that they understood this verse better and lived it more fully, maybe even more, I wish that we would. If we're introspective and look at ourselves, Lord is it I, then I think a lot of us Latter-day Saints could stand living into those principles better ourselves. And seeing others out there that are doing things in the name of Christ. But they're not ours. They're not with us. They're not Latter-day Saints. Well, maybe not Saints, uh, <laughs> capital S, registered trademark, but Saints in terms of trying to come unto Christ. Oh yeah, they're Saints too. And I hope that we can work together on these kinds of things. I hope that we can quit trying to be so territorial as if only we are the ones that God uses. <laughs> There's actually a funny story. When President Monson was president of the church, like I said, the last 25 years I've been serving in church education. And I had learned early on in my career that Seminary Institute is really, really protective of its audiovisuals, of its, of its films. And, and I learned early on, no one's allowed to, to watch those videos except in seminary or institute class. And I thought, well, why? If it's that good? I, mean, I think part of it was, well, we don't want to steal our own thunder. And if it's something they've watched a million times at home, then when you turn it on in seminary class and they're going to roll their eyes like, oh, I've seen this ever since I was a kid. So, you know, we're going to save it for that. I mean, even to the point I remember, and maybe I just had a, uh, maybe my immediate administrators were a little more protective than others. But there's an amazing video that I remember seeing when I was a seminary kid in high school about the armor of God. And I loved it. It's like battlefield, you know, scene, and they're out with real armor, and it was really cool. It moved me. And it was made for the New Testament uh, in Ephesians chapter 6. Well, it was Doctrine and Covenants year, the first time I was going to teach seminary, and I wanted to use that video because in section 27, it teaches the armor of God. And they were like, no, 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 you can't use that. That's a New Testament video. I'm like, it's about the armor of God. It was, well, we got to save it for the New Testament. Jesus didn't save it for only for the New Testament. He repeats it in the Doctrine and Covenants. And surely I can repeat, let them see the video for crying out loud. But it was, uh, well, that was especially true of like 
young women's classes and young men's classes and priesthood and relief society. Like, no, no, no. You're not allowed to show seminary videos outside of seminary. Well, <laughs> I had heard this from a CES administrator, church education, that he was in a meeting with President Monson and a bunch of other auxiliary presidencies and so on. And somebody from, I think, from the priesthood department asked, you know, we really would love to use this video in something that we're trying to do. It is a seminary. It, the video, though, is part of Seminary Institute. And President Monson, <laughs> as only he could, just kind of feigns shock, like, oh, I don't know. I mean, those CES people are so territorial. And then he joked and he said, because heaven forbid that any other department in the church plays a role in someone's salvation. I mean, Seminary Institute, are you okay to share with the other children? And ever since, yes, we've shared with the other children. Uh, I chuckle, or at least I would if it weren't so, like, come on now. Uh, can't we let those that are different can't we honor the fact that many of their goals are identical to our own? That would be childlike of us. That would be overcoming comparison and competition and contention. So under the same umbrella, John, you've got some work on that to, to do on that one. We all do. Now, the Lord goes on and says in Mark chapter 9, verse 41, For whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name, because ye belong to Christ, Verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. I mean, something as small and simple as that. I mean, you were talking about something bigger. They were casting out devils in your name. But we, well, we put a stop to that. Why would you put a stop to that? They're doing good things. They're helping people. In fact, if someone did something as small and simple as giving you a cup of water, please understand that that was a, a Christian thing to do too. And their shared Christianity should be honored as a result. Overcome the contention and the comparison. And then comes the warning of condemnation that also appears in Matthew. Okay? So go back to Matthew chapter 18, verse 5 and 6. And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receiveth me. That's the good side, what he's been going teaching this whole time. But then the not so good side. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Whoa. That is some of the strongest language Jesus will ever use. Is the child still sitting on his lap? Is he still holding him in his arms? Did he cover his ears? You don't want to hear this part. Drowned in the depths of the sea? Whoa. Millstone about their neck. Have you ever tried to do the visual aid of that? A millstone is a massive rock. Often too heavy for a human to roll very long. So often they would put it, use the millstone in, in conjunction with some kind of beast of burden. Their donkey, their mule, their, their, their ox. And... And with that millstone, crush oil or crush olives to produce olive oil, crush grapes to bring forth the juice. I mean, to understand what a millstone is doing in Israelite culture, this is a stark visual image that he's giving them. 
to tie one of those around someone's neck, they probably can't even lift it up themselves. But then to throw them overboard? Millstones were often used in the ancient, in the ancient world as anchors. Throw them into the depths of the sea and have some kind of buoy up top, but connect them, tie them to the boat, and the boat's not going anywhere. Because there's a millstone keeping it in place. Now, who is the Lord referring this strong language? Who's, who is he reserving it for? Those who offend one of these little ones that believe in me. The word offend, by the way, is an interesting one. The Greek word is scandalizo. Can you hear scandalize as the cognate? Are you scandalizing these little children? The word means to lay a snare, to cause to stumble. We can think of that in terms of child abuse, child neglect, and not just children, but those that are equally vulnerable. Could this be elder abuse? Could this be abuse of, of the, the handicapped, the disabled? To understand how strong the Lord feels about this. There's the strength of his language, the strength of his imagery. Do not lay a trap. Do not scandalize them. Do not offend them. Not even one of these little ones. If abuse and neglect are on, are on the list, lately, the more I've worked with people that are struggling in their faith, I also wonder about those that are offending little ones in their faith who believe in Jesus and in the restored gospel. And talk about laying snares for them. Talk about putting out traps to try to entangle them in a loss of faith. To scandalize them. Back to that Greek word is an interesting one. In my own study of anti-religious rhetoric, I often boil it down to what I call the three S's. And it is typically sensational and superficial and selective. Maybe the S we could use is scandalizo, to offend. That it tries to scandalize people. There's the sensationalism, the shock and awe. Can you believe that this happened in church history? Did you hear what Brigham Young once said? Or did you know that Joseph Smith did blah, 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 blah? And yet that scandalization, that sensationalism, so often is built on superficial understanding of what took place and very selective accounts of what occurred. They typically try to decontextualize things and only give you the worst side of the matter. And it offends people. It scandalizes people. It ensnares them and pulls them away from a simple faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I will not use names because I don't want to be contentious. But there have been times I have listened or watched or read anti-Mormon material that, is, that I can tell is, is trying to scandalize people trying to offend little ones who believe in Christ. It's hard for me, as one who tries to give everyone the benefit of their doubts, including those who are attacking the church, but it's hard for me sometimes to hear what they're doing, to, to watch and to read, and to know that they are 
are not being as transparent as they claim. To see sometimes that, I remember one that haunts me still, of taking a little one, someone who believed, and there with the world looking on, let's tell you the real story about church history. Let's introduce you to the real Joseph Smith. When their caricature of him was no more real than what they accuse the church of portraying. If they are fighting what they consider dogmatism or one-sidedness on the church's part, oh, they're only responding with equal or greater dogmatism and one-sidedness on their part. And to watch someone's testimony be dismantled right before your eyes. My heart was breaking and I just wanted to interrupt saying, tell the rest of the story. Keep it in context. Don't over-sensationalize things and don't be so superficial or selective in what you are trying to convey. But what broke my heart was seeing a little one that believed in Christ being offended in real time. She didn't act offended, she acted shocked, but that's the scandalized word that the Greek implies. And to see the traps, because it was becoming increasingly obvious what this victim didn't know that was being supplied but also the parts that they weren't supplying that would help stabilize the stumbling feet of this little one. I don't want to get any more specific than that. And I certainly don't want to finish the verse with those people in mind because God will judge. And I am grateful for his mercy and grateful that he takes all things into consideration, including the difficult experiences that many people have had in the church that lie behind their departure from it and their attack of it. I will give doubters the benefit of their doubt, and I will not become an anti-person, even toward an anti-Mormon. Millstone language is too strong for me to ever use. But I do hope that we will pause and consider the effect that we are having on little ones who believe in Jesus and choose for ourselves never to do anything to offend them. Elder Hafen talked about bubble poppers that sometimes people that are grappling with the complexity of the gospel, that have emerged from the simplicity onto the complexity, but are not yet to the simplicity on the other side of complexity, and they're reveling in that complexity, and they, in fact, in some ways, it's just as simplistic as before, but it's simplistic on the other side. It's just as dogmatic as before, but just dogmatic on the other side. And what they end up doing is going around popping people's bubbles. You've heard me talk about this before, the creation, fall, atonement stages. And people in the fall stage go around popping the bubble of people in creation. They lay snares to drag them out of the Garden of Eden. 
and put them on their side of cherubim and the flaming sword. Ha ha, there's no going back to your naive and simple faith. This was a little one who believed in Jesus. What are you doing to them? Popping their bubbles. Or as an analogy I often use, cracking their eggshells. Oh, you may have felt claustrophobic back in the egg. But do you not remember that the egg was protecting you? Allowing you to grow and to develop? Just because it got to the point where it was too confining for you. That's part of growing up. Welcome to the club. But it's in the effort and fight of pushing out of the egg. When that time comes naturally to you, the chick will know. If you crack the egg prematurely, you didn't free that chick. You killed it because it never developed the wing strength to function outside the egg. That shell served a purpose. And the wrestle to outgrow it serves a purpose as well. So in your zeal to go out and crack eggs and pop bubbles and offend little ones, I've said to, to people on the, other, on the opposite side, I am not trying to reinforce the shell. I'm not trying to, to convince my students that, that it, no, it's all in here and don't, never, don't think outside the box and don't quit asking questions. And No, but it's natural growth. And I do believe there are ways to communicate across the shell to those that are still within the egg. Take advantage of all the time in Eden that you have. Because east of Eden gets a little rough at times. <laughs> Lick up every particle of yolk you've still got in there. It's harder to come by out here. Understand the, the benefit of being a little one. In a way, the Lord wants us to remain little our whole lives as far as our humility and reliance on Him. But as you grow up in God, and become not so little in your understanding of truth and reality and, and the messiness of life and of church history and humanity mingled with divinity all the way through, perhaps you'll be better prepared to navigate it in a healthy way. Especially if we can help prepare you for it instead of just prematurely ch uh, hitting eggs, cracking shells and hurting little ones in the process. Please forgive me if that was an overly long tangent. Uh, it was just, I've never, I've never pondered those verses in the light of spiritual offense, especially among little ones who believe in Christ and his gospel. Now, verse seven, the Lord keeps going and says, Woe unto the world because of offenses. For it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to the man by whom the offense cometh. Interesting verse, kind of confusing for many, but keep it in the context of what we just read. Yes, there will be offenses. In fact, even back to the idea of the messiness of church history and, and things that might scandalize people, there's a lot of reality there, messy reality. It is complexity that we have to pass through. But how is that going to be avoided when it's mere mortals that the Lord chooses to work through? Like I said, there will always be humanity mingled with the divinity. But don't deny the divinity as you're scandalized by the humanity. 
it must needs be that offenses come. <laughs> We're offensive people. We're mere mortals. We're fallen human beings. Now, that doesn't excuse it. Notice his next line. Woe unto that man by whom the offense cometh. In some ways, it's as if the Lord is saying, people will make mistakes. Try not to be that person. Accidents will happen. Be careful not to be the, the cause of the, of the accident. I even think about that sometimes when it comes to Judas Iscariot, for example, who in a coming week, we will see him betray the Savior. And some say, but if Jesus had to be betrayed, if there was, he had to be crucified at least, then wasn't Judas just playing his part as prophesied? It's like, ooh, don't excuse him with that. Would, was someone going to betray the Savior? It's like Lucifer in the premortal uh, war in heaven. Was someone going to reject the Father's plan and come up with something different? Was there going to be rebellion in the ranks? Well, the fact that a third of the host of heaven followed Satan suggests that, yeah, if Lucifer hadn't started it, someone else would have. If Judas hadn't betrayed Christ... Sooner or later, an offense was bound to come. Oh, but Judas, why did you have to be that guy? Why did you have to be the one through whom the offense comes? Sooner or later, every little one who believes in Christ and his kingdom will be confronted with cognitive dissonance and disappointment and things that might scandalize them. But woe be to the person who leaves them unprepared to navigate it. Woe be to the person who pushes it in their face before they're able to... I mean, even, not even Hollywood does that. Even Hollywood will, will warn you about PG and PG-13 and, and just how old... When is a child prepared to learn more? We have to make those decisions when we teach American history. And we have to make those decisions when we teach church history as well. I hope that makes sense. Uh, even if it's not, this is tricky, even if it's not with malice, with malintent, I'm not trying to offend it, I'm not trying to scandalize. What's interesting is that back to the millstone analogy. Even if we can get past the drowning, which Jesus mentioned, so it's stark and it's, it's there. But if we think of millstone instead as an anchor, like I mentioned, if it's used as an anchor, and the boat's still up there floating, but it's not going to float away. I worry about even those that are keeping people from healthy progression by chaining them to some spot of understanding. And that millstone is keeping them from growing up in God. That millstone, the way we treat each other on the horizontal, the second great commandment, perhaps keeping them from ascending to God on the vertical component of the first great commandment. I don't know if I explained that well, but I hope that we'll wrestle with this more. I know I want to. Uh, Navigating humanity and divinity, navigating truth and, and error on the part of mere mortals. Perfect gospel and imperfect people trying to live it. Just be aware of little ones. And may we be as humble as they are, especially as we try to help them grow up in God.
Now, if that isn't the case, then we need to keep reading. And in Matthew 18, verse 8 and 9, he's going to use some stark language here, too. Not as stark, well, maybe not as stark as the, as the millstone and being drowned in the depths of the sea, but this is, pretty, this is pretty rough language, too. Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off. Cast them from thee. After all, it's better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. I guess this is just as stark as the drowning in the sea. He gives another body part some attention. If thine eye offend thee, pluck it out, cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. Now, if this is ringing bells for you, it should, because Jesus already taught this principle back in the Sermon on the Mount. But that was a different context as well. Back then, the context was immorality. He was talking about the law says don't commit adultery, raise the bar. I say don't even look with lust. And if your eye is the source of that lust, then pull it out and cast it away. Pluck it and cast it. Get rid of whatever it is that is offending you, making it hard for you to clear the raised bar. Well, in this case, it's not immorality, it's being childlike. And yet he's still talking about the same concept. How, who's leading me? If I am a little child, open to influence, and other people are trying to raise me up in a certain way, what if they offend me? What if they scandalize me? What if they rob me of my faith in God? Well, for this, go back to the Mark version, because I, I told you Mark is more raw. And so there's even stronger language in Mark. This is Mark 9, verse 43 through 48. And again, he'll warn against offending hands and feet and eyes. He'll talk the same kind of message of cut them off and cast them from you, pluck them out and get rid of them. Better to be, I mean, Jesus is really good at replacing plucked out eyes and healing cut off limbs. Let him do that in his kingdom. If those body parts are causing problems now, then get rid of them. But then the JST of those passages gives us some incredible insight. So we're still in Mark 9. Let's start in verse 40 of the JST. And notice what he gives us by inspiration. Therefore, if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. Now let me clarify what I mean by that. Who's your hand? Or if thy brother offend thee, and confess not, and forsake not. So repentance is always an option, right? If they'll confess and forsake, and that's true of anti-Mormons. It's true of those that are trying to rob little ones of their belief in Christ. If they, and there are brothers, okay? People that we should love and esteem and try to help and serve. We are our brother's keepers, after all. But if this brother won't repent, then he shall be cut off, the text tells us. And then explains, as usual, it is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell. Or, let me say that with what we now know the symbol means, for it is better for thee to enter into life without thy brother than for thee and thy brother to be cast into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and their fire is not quenched. Whew, stark language there, too. Hard sayings. Who can hear them? I'm being asked to cut off my brother and cast it from me? My friend, my family member, my child? Are, 
I can't do that. They're a part of me. Well, why do you think I called them your hand? Your right-hand man, your brother, your a body part. Paul is going to use that imagery for all the members of the body of Christ, fellow members of the church, in this case, fellow members of your own family. Yeah, this is desperate times call for desperate measures. This is going to hurt. You're losing a part of yourself as you sever a relationship that means everything to you. Now, don't do that lightly. And I'll come back to some other possibilities as far as how we interpret this. But understand where the Savior is coming from. If you don't sever the relationship and it gets to the point where they drag you down, see, that's the, real, that's the issue here. If you maintain the relationship, who's going to end up winning the arm wrestle? Will you save them or will they drag you down? Are you lifting them or are they sinking you? In fact, back to the sinking idea. Think about lifeguards. I remember when I got the Life Saving Merit Badge as a Boy Scout. We learned how to save lives. That's what I assumed we would. But we also we not only learned how to save people, we learned how to escape people. And that's not any, that, I did not expect that. I do remember, as part of the Life Saving Merit Badge, this is how you get away from the drowning victim that you're trying to rescue. And you, if they're clamoring for air and they're desperate because they think they're going to die, they'll do anything to keep their head up, including push you down. But if you drown, then they will too. So this is how you escape. If they have you in a headlock, for, for example, and you turn your head and you duck your chin and get, try to push them up the, their arms up over your head, and then you dive down and get away from them. Swim out a ways and come back up for air and then tread water and watch. Because maybe they're a little tired after that wrestle. And maybe now they're in a better place for you to go and try again to save them. We'll come back to that thought in just a moment. But think about that in terms of this context of cutting off hands. I'd rather preserve them. Well, duh. I'd rather hold on to my brother as you should. But you have to... You have to be able to determine, will two people end up alive or will two people end up spiritually dead? Will I save them or will they sink me? And if you're in danger of being sunk, then get out of the situation. Hopefully not permanently. We'll come back to that thought in just a moment. But let's use another example because he's not done. JST of Mark 9, now verse 42 and 43. And again, here's a second example. If thy foot offend thee, cut it off. But the JST will explain what he means by it. For he that is thy standard, by whom thou walkest, see why a foot is such a good example? I'm following their footsteps. If he become a transgressor, he shall be cut off. After all, it is better for thee to enter halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell into the fire that never shall be quenched. So again, great analogy here. The foot meaning your leader, your example, your hero, whoever it is that you want to wear their shoes and follow their footsteps. If those footsteps lead in a downward direction, then you're wearing the wrong shoes. You're following the wrong footsteps. And even if it takes cutting that foot off, 
to allow it to go its way while you go the Lord's way? Again, the best case scenario is two survivors. You've held on to them and you turn their feet back in the Lord's direction. How beautiful upon the mountain would those feet be? Worst case scenario is you just follow them in the downward descent and now you have two casualties. If you can't have the best but want to avoid the worst, then at least honor their agency and ask them to honor yours and let them go your way. Excuse me, let them go their way while you go the Lord's way. At least that will leave a later opportunity for you to try again to rescue. One more example of this, then verse 44 and 45, still in the JST. Therefore, let every man stand or fall by himself and not for another. There's that honoring of agency and them honoring yours. Or not trusting another. That's, again, if they're my hand, of course I can trust my own hand. Well, really? What if it leads you astray? I can trust my own feet. You got two left ones and they're going in the wrong direction. This is back to the parable of the sower. Do you have root in yourself or are you just leeching off of somebody? Some, are you a parasitic plant just leeching off of somebody else? And this is back to Joseph Smith. Have you learned for yourself? Do you have your own testimony? This is uh, Peter at Caesarea Philippi. What does flesh and bone say to you? Or what has your father in heaven said to you? You've got to be able to stand on your own two feet. Otherwise, you'll fall by following the feet of someone else. So let every man stand or fall by himself. And then the Lord adds, seek unto my father. That's the real source, okay? And it shall be done in that very moment what ye shall ask, if ye ask in faith, believing that ye shall receive. That's how you gain your own testimony. That's how you, that, that's how you can, I mean, talk about a prosthetic limb. If you cut off your hand because that brother is offending you, but then the Lord offers you his hand to take its place. You cut off your foot because that former leader, teacher, parent, hero is leading you in the wrong direction, then replace it with the feet of him who publishes peace. That's an interesting thought. Believe in him. Seek the Father. Let him lead. And then the last example he gives, verse 46 through 48, thy eye. That might be the hardest one. I can do a lot of things one-handed. I can do a lot of things with one foot. One eye, I lose depth perception. At least I can still see, but if we're talking sight in general and how I see things, to lose my sense of sight would be the worst possible thing. But here, if thine eye which seeth for thee so let me explain that. Him that is appointed to watch over thee, to show thee light. Oh, that's really interesting. Now we really have someone that's not just leading the way, but showing us how to see the world. This really, I mean, who's, who's lighting our path before us? Here really is a teacher or a leader or a parent. But if they start leading you astray, if they replace light with darkness, if they become a transgressor, the Lord says, and offend thee, scandalize thee, lay a trap for thee, then pluck him out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. For it is better that thyself should be saved than to be cast into hell with thy brother 
where their worm dieth not and where the fire is not quenched. That's really what it all boils down to. Because if you're, if you're in hell, you can't help the others. If you're in heaven, then there's still hope. That to me goes back to what we were talking about with lifeguards and rescuers. Sometimes I have students and friends and people that I meet just, well, you study anti-Mormonism, should I? That way I can really be helpful to people. I said, well, be careful. Elder Ballard has said repeatedly, make sure you got, give God equal time. And I have the luxury of spending 40 hours a week plus in God's Word. I spend way more time studying Scripture than I do studying anti-Mormonism. I spend way more time listening to the voice of God than listening to the voices of those that are trying to offend little ones. And when the voice of God is clear enough in your ear, boy, can you detect the tone that comes from the opposite direction. So I'm not suggesting you go and do this. But when you are in a position that you want to help someone. That's really what we're after here. You've got to make sure you can stay saved the whole time. If that means cutting things off, and I'm sorry, at this moment, I, I was going to go down that path with you and read that thing or watch that podcast. I can't. I'm not feeling strong enough. And they'll probably make fun of you for that. Say, ah, I knew you couldn't handle it. They'll stick your head back in the sand, ostrich. Uh, you got to turn a blind ear or a blind eye or a deaf ear to that. And just go, I'm, I'm sorry. It's actually my concern for you that makes me want to save myself so I can be of, of benefit to you at some point. If I'm cast into prison, I cannot pay the, the uttermost farthing. We'll see another example of that later on today. But what we're seeing here is, am I in a position where I can save you? Even lifeguards are taught, best case scenario, stay in the boat and throw out a buoy or a, or a line Stay on the dock, stay on the beach, stay on safe ground. Then there's no chance of you becoming a drowning victim. Now, if you have to get in the water for their sake, make sure that, like I said before, there's not two victims here. Learn to escape. But here's where I come, come back to this thought of dive down, get away, come back to the surface, tread water, and keep your eye on the person you were trying to help in the first place. Because maybe they're more open to be saved a second or a third or a twentieth time. And this is what struck me once years ago when I was studying this. Because the starkness of it scandalized me a bit. Like, really? Cut them off? It's one thing, back in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, that if this thing offends thee, then get rid of it. If I need to cancel that, that... No, TVs, that cable subscription. If I need to eliminate whatever it is that's causing my immoral thoughts, for example. That's the context Jesus gives for the first one. That's one thing. But with the JST of Mark 9, we're talking people. We're talking family members and friends. We're talking about people that helped raise you or taught you or influenced you. I'm severing relationships? Instead of just canceling cable, that's, what, desperate times call for desperate measures? But this is what helped me. 
I looked up in the Greek and tried to understand what does he mean? I understand the scandalize and offend, but what does he mean by pluck out? Because to take an eye and pluck it out, that is desperate times calling for desperate measures. But when I looked it up in the Greek and saw that, yes, that's an accurate translation, you are pulling it out and removing it, but I saw that there's other ways that that verb can be used. For example, when somebody falls overboard and you try to pluck them out of the water, grab them and pull them out of the dangerous situation that they're in. That's when the whole lifeguard analogy came to mind. And that's when I realized there's two ways of plucking out. One is to pluck it out and get rid of it. The other is to try to go save it by plucking it out of the situation it's in. And sure enough, that's exactly what life-saving consists of. If someone in your life is scandalizing, laying traps, snares, forcing you, not forcing, causing your disbelief, then the first thing you need to do to save yourself is to pluck him out of your life. Or at least say, can we not talk about those kinds of things? But if I pluck it out of my, again, there's the two versions, pluck it out of your eye or pluck it out of the water. I'm going to keep going back and forth between the two. Sometimes trying to help someone is keeping yourself safe first. So I pluck them out. But then I'm in a position where I can maybe in a better day, a stronger, and I've, I'm, I'm feeling like I can do, make a difference. Then I try to pluck them out. And if it doesn't work, then I pluck them out. And then I try again to pluck them out and pluck it out. You understand what I'm doing? To pluck them out of the eye and then pluck them out of the water. And back and forth and back and forth. I really hope I end on the one where I'm plucking them out of the water. Because then I've saved my brother. I've preserved the relationship. And we can both continue our journey back to God. There... There's some interesting lessons to be learned here. And if, as we all seem to be having thoughts of people that we know and love that are struggling in their faith, then perhaps this is a lesson worth internalizing. Now, get back to the, to the message Jesus is teaching, though. And in the Matthew account, again, thank you, Mark, for your raw realities. Thank you, Joseph Smith, for your clarification on all these things. But back to Matthew. See what Jesus says next. Chapter 18, verse 10. Take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones. And despise is a new word here. We, we saw offend before, the scandalize. Despise here in the Greek means to scorn, to look down on. But also means to disregard, to ignore, to think little of. Don't underappreciate them. Don't shrug them off and turn them aside. Take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones. For I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. Their angels? Is there some sense of guardian angelship here? People that care about them on the other side of the veil? Well, we have doctrine that backs that up. But the, th the thought of those angels, their angels, the ones that are so drawn to the spiritual welfare of these little ones, have th th they always behold the face of their father? That's interesting. It almost seems like they've got in either eye in, either in two different directions. And with one eye, their, eyes are always, their, their gaze is always on the person that they love, this little one. I mean, I'm their angel after all. 
but with the other eye, it's always on the face of God, kind of reading his expression, trying to get a sense of how does the father feel about what this little one is going through. So be careful, those who are trying to offend or those that are trying to despise. We need to take better care of our little ones. And I'm not just talking age here. People young in the faith, people still in the garden stage of growing up in God. Don't offend and don't despise. Sometimes those in the fall stage want to offend those in the creation stage by dragging them out prematurely, cracking the egg. But sometimes they end up despising them in terms of thinking less of them and looking down their noses and where's your brain and when are you going to grow up and stop being so naive? Oh, careful. They're still gaining the benefit of the egg. Chances are they'll be able to survive the transition outside of it better than the other person has. Okay. Really, really fascinating things, especially from my perspective of spending so much time with people in faith crisis. The, these passages are fascinating. Now, next, Jesus is going to teach them a parable of sorts, but one that we know better from Luke's account. And it's going to be a couple weeks before we see the Luke version of it. So we'll just hint at it here from Matthew because Luke's is so much more full and famous. But here in Matthew 18, verse 11 through 14, the Son of Man is come to save that which was lost. These, these little ones that are being despised or offended, I've come to save them. The JST even adds, and to call sinners to repentance. But these little ones have no need of repentance, and I will save them. So I'm, I'm here for everybody. I, I'm here for the sinners, bring them back, even those that are offending and despising. If anybody's strong enough to tread water with a millstone, <laughs> holding onto a millstone with the other hand, it's going to be Jesus. He can walk on the water and therefore save anybody that seems to be drowning, even if it's their own self, if it's self-inflicted. Now, Jesus is here to call those sinners to repentance, to save those that are lost. But he's also there to save these little ones that have no need of repentance. I'm going to save them too. Interesting that Jesus is equally concerned about victim and perpetrator. They all matter to him, and thus they should all matter to us. But then he says this, and here's his parable. How think ye? So I want you to have some skin in the game. I want you to think your way through this. What would your response to this situation be? How think ye? If a man have an hundred sheep, and one of them be gone astray, now, do you know the, the parable that we know from Luke so well? This is the, the Matthew version of the parable of the lost sheep. Luke's is better, no offense, Matthew. Uh, and so we're going to save our discussion of it for there. But notice some detail that Matthew gives us. If you've got a hundred, you lose one. Doth he not leave the ninety and nine and goeth into the mountains? That's something Matthew mentions that Luke does not. You go into the mountains and seeketh that which is gone astray, and if so be that he find it. And that's another detail from Matthew. The if, that's a hard one. I mean, there's no guarantee here. I, I don't know if I'll be able to find this lost sheep. Agency is real. Now, don't ever give up on them. We'll see the word until in the Luke version of this. But we have to grapple with the if that Matthew gives us. Well, either way, 
he ends, Verily I say unto you, he rejoiceth more of that sheep than of the ninety and nine which went not astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Hmm. Like I said, we'll save our in-depth discussion of this concept for Luke chapter 15. But don't lose sight of Matthew's concerning if, honor their agency, but also the importance of the mountains to seek. If you're going to help any, raise them up, you're going to have to be on higher ground yourself. To think about the power that can flow into your life when you're endowed with power from on high in the temple, in the mountain of the Lord. If you're struggling with a lost sheep or worried about whether or not, if you'll ever be able to find them, spend some extra time in the mountain and it will give you hope. You will learn there of a Lord that does all within his power to help people navigate from creation through fall and onto atonement. As one who ponders those stages constantly and tries to help people navigate them, the temple endowment is a powerful reassurance for me that the Lord has this all figured out. He knows how to help prodigals come home. Now, back to where we left off. We're working with lost sheep. And, and shepherds that are scaring sheep away. We're working with those that despise and offend. How are we going to work with them? What the Lord says next in Matthew 18, verse 15, he says, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, if, whether it's offending or despising, I don't know, but some kind of trespass, and this is your brother, this is your hand, okay? I don't want to cut it off. It's, it's a body part. I've come to, to appreciate it. What am I supposed to do, though, when it becomes offensive? Well, here's step one. Go and tell them his fault. And do it between thee and him alone. That's, that's great advice. Go address the problem, but don't do it in public. Don't try to publicly shame them. Just speak with them. Address the issue. Now, if he shall hear thee, great. Thou hast gained thy brother. And we can end it right there. Fantastic. No harm, no foul. Uh, I forgive you. You have confessed and forsaken, like he said earlier. I now forgive. And so brothers once in the past can now be brothers again at last, right? But what if it doesn't work? What if they don't confess and forsake? If they don't repent? Well, here's the next step. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. That's good Jewish law, okay? Law of witnesses. Now, you're still trying to do the most good at the least personal cost to the other person. I've got a few other witnesses here, but I'm still not publicly shaming you. I just need you to know, it's not just me that's seeing this. This is not just me, me said, you said. There are other people that are aware of this problem. And, and again, carefully, gently, calmly, non-contentiously, we're trying to bring this to your attention. Because we love you. You're our brother. You're our hand, our foot, our eye. Please stay part of the body. We've got all kinds of body parts now that are speaking up in unison, hoping that you'll understand some changes need to be made. Now, again, if that works, fantastic. But if not, here's step three. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. So only now does it become a public issue. 
And it, it has to by now because the public, that is those church members, need to be protected from this, this rogue body part, this hand that is slapping them, this foot that is leading them astray, this eye that is giving them darkness rather than light. Now you have to bring them before the church. Tell the church about it. And hopefully that's enough to jolt them into a realization of what they're doing, the damage they're causing. This is where a membership council would come in, for example. This is where you have to protect the innocent. You have to preserve the good name of the church. You're trying to, to save the soul of the sinner, but they're not willingly being saved. And so sometimes cutting them off, plucking them out, casting them from you, is the only thing that can be done for the best of everyone concerned. Now, the way the Lord it, it ends this, because again, best case scenario, it works. And their excommunication, for example, can be the first step back on a road to repentance. But if not, if he neglect to hear the church, this is the fourth and unfortunately now the final, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. And again, sorry for Matthew having to write this like, man, why he keeps bringing up publicans? I'm, that's past me, okay? I'm, that's not me anymore. Well, good. Then you don't have to worry about it. You see, a heathen man and a publican, they're the ones that you turn away from. They're the ones that don't want... They've turned... Our, they, I mean, the heathen don't have anything to do with Israel, and the publicans are, seem to be against Israel. And so there's no love loss anymore. It's, we tried everything we could. Interesting that even it comes down to four attempts because the Lord's law of war in Doctrine and Covenants 98, for example, is on the fourth try, you're finally justified if you choose to defend yourself. And that's what's happening here as well. Now, he's going to build on this. And he says in verse 18, some language that we remember from last week's discussion in chapter 16. Matthew 18, 18, he says, Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So we're back to the keys of the kingdom that Jesus promised to Peter. But this time it's not just Peter he's speaking to. There's more rocks than one. And I hinted at this last week, but this verse expands the circle of authority to the other apostles. Some read this verse and even suggest he's expanding it to the entire church. But he's doing it in the context of discipline. And that's often how Protestantism uh, interprets these verses to begin with. That binding on earth and, and binding in heaven is kind of sealing a sinner up to condemnation. Or sealing the righteous up to forgiveness and eternal life. That there's a certain sense here of, have we done all that we could to help them? And we talked to them one-on-one. -on -one, and then we brought witnesses. And then we talked about it at church. And... There was still nothing that we could, do, that they were unwilling to change. And so, I'm sorry, we're going to have to, to loose you from the congregation on earth. And that looses you from the congregation in heaven. You're not part of the kingdom of God. And it's your choice. It's your doing. That's the context of these keys that are here. Now, verse 19 and 20 then, he'll build on that and, and start moving us in a different direction. Again, I say unto you, that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. 
Now that still is kind of pivoting from what he's been talking about with discipline. Are you, do, are you agreed on this? You've got your two or three witnesses. Right, have you decided together what needs to happen here? But then he expands it. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. And I do love that. Where two or three, that's enough for him. The worth of souls is great in the sight of God, and he doesn't expect a whole crowd to gather before he's, he thinks it's a, a good use of his time. No, sometimes the most effective things are the least efficient things. And there's something powerful about a, a classroom of two or three. I've taught a few classes that small. And it was amazing to still feel the Lord's influence coming to join in the conversation. In some way, I mean, in many ways, it doesn't even have to be two or three. It can be just you. And you communing with God, that's, that's, an, that's a dynamic duo if I've ever seen one. But when it comes to asking things, and that's the context here, are, what are you asking of the Lord? And do you agree on earth to the point that you can then get confirmation from heaven? Again, the context of, of these verses is really interesting. You're trying to decide something here. Well, then you do need two or three for the Lord to come and participate. Because if it's just you, then you're just calling the shots and making up your mind and what a kind of little mini tyrant there. No, it's a husband and a wife talking together. It's parents and children with a family council. It's a presiding officer with the whole council counseling together, assembling the pieces of the puzzle of this scattered revelation. For those kinds of decisions, the things that you're trying to agree on and asking God for help with, you need two or three because that helps alert you to your own individual blind spots. It forces some second great commandment horizontality that then invites the first great commandment verticality of the Lord coming down to participate in the council as well. Okay, So where two or three are gathered, there will the Lord be. It's a great principle in any context, but specifically in this one, decision-making, oh, that's huge. Now with all that in mind, you can kind of see where this next question from Peter comes in. This is verse 21, Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? In other words, how many times, I mean, we, okay, we talked about the three times and then the fourth, and if the fourth doesn't work, then, then I can cut them off, right? Uh, I mean, how many times do I, do I endure what my brother is doing before I cut off the hand or pluck out the eye? And then he comes up with a suggestion that I'm sure he thought was incredibly generous. Because beyond the four that Jesus just hints at, he says, till seven times? I mean, talk about almost double the minimum requirement. Think about how merciful I'm being here. Well, the Lord <laughs> responds. He says to him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until 70 times seven. So seven, you're close, Peter. Actually, you're not. But I am glad that you're increasing beyond what, I, what I'm hinting at with the four. Let's go with seven times 70, shall we? And you picture Peter pulling out his abacus uh, and says, okay, carry the one. Put the abacus down, Peter. I don't mean 490 by that, okay? And again, if Peter struggled, I'm sure Matthew would have been really quick with all of his experience as a publican 
county in Texas. Okay, he probably jumped straight to 490. And the, no, 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 no. I'm not. I'm hoping you'll lose count. I, I, this is not about keeping score. This is about allowing God to settle scores in, the, in ways that only his omniscience will allow him to do well. The perfect balance of justice and mercy. Mercy for you if that's what you deserve. Justice for your enemy if that's what they deserve. But leave it in God's hands. So just be forgiving. Don't count your, the numbers of your forgivenesses. Okay? I've shared this before, but back in the day, teaching seminary, there were two friends that were both equally weird. Uh, hilarious young men. I loved them both. Uh, but they had quirky pers personalities and senses of humor, one of them particularly. And he was usually the instigator, and his sidekick was usually the victim of his own jokes, or of his friend's, his friend's jokes. And I remember one day, I was in my office, and they came in, and we were chit-chatting about stuff. And, and I loved these two, and so we had a fun relationship. But the one, the, the, the sidekick would mention something. He was talking about, he was more of the serious of the two. And he was talking about something about the gospel. And then his friend would say a number and then say the next number. And it just kept happening. His friend would say something, you know, the, the sidekick would say something. And then the instigator, the, the, the class clown, would say, 192, 193. And his friend would just ignore him or roll his eyes. And then he'd keep talking. And then his friend would go, oh, 193, 194. And I'm, and this kept happening until I finally turned to his buddy and said, what are you counting for? And with this little mischievous grin, he said, oh, I'm just, I'm forgiving him. And I need to keep, I, I need to keep straight how many times I've done it. Huh? He's like, yeah, I mean, he'll say something and it's, I mean, listening to him. Everything, everything comes out of his mouth is potentially offensive. And, and sure enough, it offends me. But I'm, I'm above that. And I'm such a generous, merciful friend that I forgive him. And in fact, because I am like, so, but then why do you keep, why do they come in pairs? And he said, well, just, I mean, think about it. Because if I am so forgiving, that probably bugs him. That he realizes that he needed to be forgiven all over again. So the moment I forgive him, I'm assuming that he's probably angry or judgmental. But I forgive him for that too. And thus, the second of the pair. And I just died laughing as I was rolling my eyes. Uh, just seriously. And I was like, but the counting? And, he's, and then he's, he said, come on, bro, Hal. You know the scriptures. Soon as I hit 490, I am done. And I never have to forgive my friend again. But I will till then. 195. 196. Now, I was dying laughing. But I tried to keep a straight face long enough to say to him, ah, I see, I see, okay, yeah, yeah, good math there. Just a quick question before you head out. Uh, what number do you think God's on with you? And then, then the, the, that, that wiped the smile off his face. I was just, oh, yikes. Yeah, God's not keeping track. You shouldn't either. He is a for, forgiving father. We need to be forgiving friends. 490? No, just lose count. Now, it's here that Jesus teaches this all-important parable. It's here that we find the parable of the unmerciful servant. And it will last through the end of this chapter. And then we'll turn the second half of our lesson on to Luke chapter 10.
But notice how he, he sets this up. Okay, verse 23. Therefore, so in response to your question, Peter, therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king. Now think who that might represent. Which would take account of his servants. So we're taking account. That suggests accountability. It implies justice. There's some expectations here. Okay. Now, when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him, which owed him 10,000 talents. And if that's the case, I can see why he had to be brought. There was no way he was coming of his own, his own choice. Because 10,000 talents is impossible to pay back. There's no way. In some ways, it's, it's, not, it's not even possible to get that deep in debt. I mean, I'll do some math with you in just a moment, and it goes far beyond 490. But here's somebody who owes 10,000 talents. But keep going with the parable. But for as much as he had not to pay, and that makes sense because nobody can pay back that much, his Lord commanded him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. Now, even putting the whole family in debtor's prison and liquidating all their assets is not going to pay, make up for 10,000 talents. That's just impossible. But that's as just as the, even the king can make it because there's no way any, that, that anybody's going to be able to come back with 10,000 talents to pay him back. Here's where the math comes in. A talent uh, at, at that time, it, estimates vary depending on what, who you're reading and who you're asking. But most scholars tend to agree that a talent would have been worth about 6,000 denarii. And a denarii is what the King James translators give us as pence, a penny. How much is a penny in those days? Well, it's how much a, a, an average day laborer, you know, a farmer in the field, is going to make for one day's labor. So picture, I don't know, minimum wage for eight hours a day, and there's your penny appointed. Six thousand of those equal one talent so to pay back one of these ten thousand talents is going to take six thousand days of labor gulp if i get a sabbath every week so that shaves off 52 of my 365 days a year and then there's some feast days and festivals so just to make the math easy Let's say that in a year you work 300 out of 365 days. Now, 300 pence a year, and I need 6,000 of them for one talent. That's 20 years worth of work. So are, we, are you still with me with the math? It's going to take me 20 years to pay back one talent, and I owe 10,000 talents. We're talking 200 thousand years of menial labor. I mean, President Nelson is making old age look easy, but even he is only 98. Not even Methuselah made it to a thousand, and you're asking me to make it to 200,000? You see why the Lord is using hyperbole in this parable? There's no way anyone could pay that much back. In fact, there's no way anybody could owe that much. In some ways, I picture this as, oh, the Secretary of Treasury for the, for the United States, for example. And they absconded with the entire gross national product. They, they owe, it's no longer a national debt. It's a personal debt, but it's the same amount. 
That's what we're talking about here. Imagine something so astronomical that this may have been one of the king's right-hand men in charge of the treasury. And it's empty now. And it's his fault. What's, what's going to happen? Well, this seems more like capital punishment. But at least this merciful king is, well, I'll throw you in prison and your family, and this is going to be an example to everyone else. I can't exact the uttermost farthing from you. But hopefully this will be a cautionary tale. But in the midst of all that, verse 26 and 27, the servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Which is ironic because it's so impossible. But notice, he's not asking for forgiveness. He's only asking for time. I don't need mercy. I just need, well, it would be merciful. Uh, what I need is patience. And if you'll just wait for it, I promise, I, I got a few irons in the fire. I got a few you know, side, side hustles. And somehow I'll be able to shave down this 200,000 years to something a little quicker. Okay? Just give me time and I will pay it all. But the Lord goes far beyond even the requested mercy by offering him mercy that no one would have the courage to ask for. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him the debt. <laughs> that almost seems impossible too. Because what kind of kingdom, what kind of king would rule a kingdom of such unimaginable wealth that an incomprehensible debt can be forgiven. And you don't have to pay me back, which is good because you can't anyway. No worries. I've got other thousands and thousands of talents. So it's okay. There's some amazing verses in the letters of Paul where, for example, he talks about the Lord and the riches of his glory or the riches of his grace or one of the best, the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long suffering. Now this king had goodness and forbearance and long suffering toward his, his prodigal servant, but it's his riches. It's the amount of those attributes that blows me away. I mean, I could probably forgive a small debt, but at some point when it's, I can't afford to be merciful here. I remember the year before we moved to Tennessee and we were living in my grandpa's old house. He was merciful and generous enough to sell it to us for something we could afford, which was a lot less than it was worth. But we lived there and then I had a one year assignment at BYU. And we were living in the Salt Lake area, and to commute all the way down to Provo every day to teach class was, seemed like a lot. So our thought was, let's just rent out some little basement apartment in Provo uh, for that one year at BYU. And we'll rent out our house in Salt Lake because we can't sell it early because it would mess up the move to Tennessee and blah, blah, blah. And we thought it was wise and it would work. And so we found the sweetest young couple with a little baby and... and, and they were just kind of starting out life, and we're like, hey, yeah, you can, you can rent our home, and uh, 
our rent was cheap in Provo, so we can make the rent cheap here for our house in Salt Lake and win-win for everybody. And it was great. And that went on for a couple of months until the husband's work situation worsened and he couldn't pay the rent. And a month and another month and another month and I was getting desperate. Uh, because I still had to pay the mortgage on the house and I had to pay my rent. This was not an investment property. I didn't have enough money to invest. I had nothing to invest. This was just like you pay this one and we'll pay this one and everyone, it works out and I'm just trying to save a commute here. I talked to my father-in-law who's an accountant and has been a landlord in a lot of different situations and he even said to me, if, uh, if a tenant misses rent, don't ever expect to get that rent back. It's usually sunk cost and you got to find a new renter, which logically made sense. But emotionally, I just felt for this little family. What if it was me? I know what it's like to live paycheck to paycheck and just trying to make ends meet and hope I have enough rent for rent. Notice the word here for this king. He was moved with compassion. Calm means with. Passion means feeling and means emotion and means suffering. So the king gets it. Maybe he wasn't always king. I don't know, maybe he was on a small allowance when he was crown prince. But somehow he has fellow feeling. He has compassion on this man. And I feel for you. I feel with you. I don't want you to suffer. And so I'm grateful that you're sorry. I forgive you. I had compassion on this renter. But I did have to have a hard conversation with him and said, I'm not in a position where I can afford to pay mortgage and rent. I am a seminary teacher. I'm, I'm trying to make ends meet and I'm praying for you really hard to be able to get, your, to get a job and be able to afford rent because that's partly paying for, praying for me and my family too. And he and his sweet wife were so grateful for compassion and grateful for patience. There really was this sense of be patient with me and I will pay thee all. And again, I kept hearing my father-in-law like, you'll never get it back. But I just felt compassion and patience and, okay, I'm still praying for us both. And he was praying hard too and his wife was praying hard. And eventually the Lord answered all of our prayers. And he got a better job to the point where he could not only afford to pay rent, but he could afford to pay the missing rent. Much to my father-in-law's surprise. Much to my relief. So I could still make ends meet. But I learned something there, that it takes a certain amount of riches to offer grace to those in need. And so no wonder the Lord speaks, or no wonder Paul speaks of the riches of the Lord's grace. That here is a king that can afford to lose 10,000 talents and not lose a servant in the process. We're back to last week's story that we ended with, lest we should offend. Just go catch a fish, Peter, and pay our taxes. Now, I don't know of any fish big enough. This would have been like Jonah's whale to fit 10,000 talents within them. But for a king rich in grace, yeah, he can catch even a fish like that. And so he forgives. I, even if we stopped the parable here, it's an amazing lesson on the riches of God's grace and his abundant 
ability and willingness to forgive us. Not just to be patient till we pay him off. That's not what we're doing. And so many of my evangelical friends are worried when they see Latter-day Saints and their toxic perfectionism and their works righteousness trying to earn heaven and pay God back. Just be patient. Give me more years. And as I keep magnifying my callings, give me some more, in fact. Then I'll be able to pay you back for your atonement. There is no paying God back for the atonement. It's a gift of the riches of His grace. It's an act of incredible Christ-like compassion. He wants to forgive us because He knows how we feel. Stop there. It's an incredible lesson about the atonement. But Jesus didn't stop there. Because you've got Peter wrestling with this. How many times do I have to forgive? You've got John. What about those people that are not on our, on our team, but they're doing things? Should we stop them? You have 12 apostles arguing over preeminence and trying to rank one another. You have people comparing and competing and criticizing and complaining left and right. And so the second half of the parable is absolutely essential. Verse 28 and 29. But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants. Important detail. They're fellow servants. That should, there should be some compassion then because they've shared similar experiences. They're in the same boat. And it's kind of a sinking one. So a fellow servant. And this fellow servant owed him an hundred pence. Remember the pence is the denarii. It's the one day's wage. So a hundred of them. If you can earn 300 in a year, this is a, th- a third of a year. So about four months worth of work. Well, that's, that's nothing compared to 200,000 years. But this fellow servant who only owed a hundred pence, a negligible fraction compared to what this other man owed. But the man laid hands on him and took him by the throat. We never saw any of that physical violence on the king's part. It was simply, oh, well, there is no justice that can do justice to what you've done, but imprisonment is the most we can do. There's going to be no cruel and unusual punishment here. Well, this man is guilty of some cruel and unusual punishment to his fellow servant. Taking him by the throat? This is threatening. This is torture. This is, tell me where you've got the money hidden away. And what does he say to him? Breathing out these threatenings. Pay me that thou owest. Why? So you can chip away at your 10,000 talent debt? That debt doesn't exist anymore. You don't need this money as as a down payment on your debt. No, you're not in debt anymore. If there's anyone, if the king can afford to forgive your 10,000 talents, you're in a perfect position to forgive the 100 pence because you don't know you don't owe anybody anything. Now Verse 29, his fellow servant fell down at his feet, just like the first man had before the king. He besought him. Now that's a far cry from worshiping him, but this man is not worthy of worship, unlike the king before. But notice what he said, saying, have patience with me and I will pay thee all. Does that phrase sound familiar? Oh, it's the exact language that this man used before the king. You'd think it would kind of jolt him into a recognition of fellow sufferings with this fellow servant. But no. I will not be patient, even though the only patience I would need would be four months worth. 
No. Not, no patience for you. He would not, but he went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. And again, there's that irony of how always, how's, how's he going to pay a debt when he's in debtor's prison? It's just going to get worse. Now, Peter, are you understanding the parable? Or is this another one where we're going to have to go behind closed doors and go admit your ignorance and say, what were you talking about there? John, you getting this? You other 10 apostles? Is this making sense? If not, let me finish it and make it even more crystal clear. Verse 31. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, and maybe they were worried about what was going to happen next since they were all fellow servants too. But when they saw it, they were very sorry and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. So now the king's aware of the situation. And what will his response be? Then his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt, because thou desirest me. That's all it was. You asked for it. You just, you begged, you pleaded. No, you just desired. I could tell. Shouldst thou not also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? The king's words here are so profound. First, he calls him wicked servant. He didn't even call him that when he realized he, had, he was owed 10,000 times, that this guy had just blown, off, blown the national debt. Your own wickedness, I didn't refer to as wicked. Your own stupidity, your own negligence, uh, you were a lousy financial minister, I don't know. But I, I overlooked it all and forgave you because you desired it of me. I, my mercy went above and beyond your mere petition for patience. And yet, you didn't... I had compassion on you. You couldn't have compassion. I don't know what it's like to be a, a servant like you. I'm a king. But if anyone should know what a fellow servant should feel, it's you, and yet you had no compassion for him. That I consider wicked. It's not what you did to get yourself into the mess that I labeled wickedness. It's your unwillingness to let someone else out of their mess. It's the hypocrisy there. It's the lack of compassion. How could you treat him that way when I treated you so differently? That's wickedness. Now, there's also a lesson in the language of compassion versus pity. I pondered this for a while because when he said, you should have had compassion on your fellow servant, fellow feeling, right? I had pity on thee. So I went to the Greek to see, ooh, are these, these are two different words in English. What about the Greek? Well, interestingly, it's the same word in Greek. So I showed compassion on you. You should have showed compassion on them. Compassion either way. I actually, though, am grateful that the King James translators gave us a different word. At least something to make us pause and consider. Is, is God's love for us different? In a way, no. It's compassion because of the empathy that was born of the atonement. But in terms of God, th there is a difference in terms of God doesn't know what it feels like to owe anybody anything. There's, there's perfection. 
And so I do like the King James translator's choice of the word pity. I had pity for you. Uh, what to be in that kind of a mess? The least, well, the the only thing I could do, I can't exact the uttermost farthing. I'll just forgive the whole debt. I just wish. And in your case, it's not pity. We don't pity each other because we are all pitiful ourselves. But the least we could muster within us is Christ-like compassion. Peter, remember that on time number seven and on time number seven times 70. Just become forgiving. Let that be your default setting that you are a forgiving soul. I'll even give you some of the riches of my grace to allow you to get there. The parable then ends in verse 34 and 35. And his Lord was wroth. Interesting. This is the first time we see any anger on the part of the king. Again, I didn't call you wicked when it was just your debt that we were discussing. I called you wicked when it was your lack of compassion. And again, I, I wasn't angry when it was just a debt you couldn't pay. But I am angry. This is righteous indignation when you can't forgive a debt someone else is trying to pay. The Lord was wroth. He delivered him to the tormentors. That's worse than debtor's prison. Till he should pay all that was due unto him. Ooh, is that going to be the 200,000 years? Is this endless and eternal condemnation like you read about in section 19 of the Doctrine and Covenants? Is this till we pay the uttermost farthing? If you do not repent, then you must suffer even as I suffered. And that suffering was infinite and eternal, everlasting as far as quality, not quantity. Again, DNC 19 is a fascinating passage. But here, the same concept. You're, you're going to have to pay this yourself now, since you wouldn't accept the riches of my mercy. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. Remember those last few lines too. This is your brother we're talking about, even more than a fellow servant. You're all brothers. And you're all your brother's keepers. So please be your brother's forgivers as well. And make sure the forgiveness comes not just from a lip that is drawing near. When the heart is far from forgiveness. No, this forgiveness needs to come from your heart. The Lord will say the same thing in his great revelation on forgiveness in Doctrine and Covenants section 64 that you ought to say within your hearts, let God judge between me and thee and answer and reward thee according to thy deeds. That's got to be heartfelt. And that's hard. That's down deep. That's in internal. That's, that usually comes from seeing ourselves in the mirror of God's mercy, of judging other people's debts by comparing them to the debt we owe to God, which is a debt that none of us can pay. It costs a perfect life to allow him to atone. And none of us have a perfect life to offer in its place. I love this parable because I love the king in the story. I am grateful for the riches of his goodness and the riches of his grace. The very least I can do 
since I can't pay him back, is to pay it forward and forgive those who have offended me, who have despised me, who have scandalized me. I testify of the mercy of Christ as portrayed in this parable. And if we can wrap our heads and hearts around it, then perhaps our hearts will be more forgiving of others as well. From that moment forward, we're ready for Luke chapter 10. And to turn there, where we're going to see a parable, another parable, even more famous than the one we just finished, the parable of the Good Samaritan. How's that for forgiving people that, are, that you hold a, a historical grudge against? How's that for not comparing and ranking people and well, Jews are above Samaritans, right? And are priests above Levites, right? And, and is Peter above James and John? And definitely above Judas, right? And oh, can we get past all of that disputation and contention? Can we come to see one another as children of God and love each other accordingly? Fellow debtors and fellow servants all. That's where we're heading in Luke chapter 10. But there is... A last story in Luke chapter 9 that we need to study before we get there. This will help build us some momentum, okay? Now, Luke chapter 9, based on what we studied last week, it's going to tell us about Peter's testimony that Jesus is the Christ. We saw that in Matthew 16. It's going to recount the transfiguration, which we saw last week in Matthew 17. It's going to tell of the father of the possessed boy and of the apostles arguing over who was greatest of them all. We saw that in Matthew 17 and just now in Matthew 18. It's going to talk about Jesus' return to Jerusalem, where so much of the rest of our story is going to take place. But on the journey, this takes place, and we need to see it. Okay? Keep this story in mind as we turn to the Good Samaritan in the next chapter. Okay? So Luke chapter 9, verse 51. It came to pass. When the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, that's powerful language. Now, remember, it's the time come he's going to be received up. At the Mount of Transfiguration, what was the discussion he was having with, with Moses and Elias? The decease that he would accomplish in Jerusalem, right? He comes down and he's point blank, tells his apostles this is going to happen. He mentioned it before in Matthew 16, that I'm going to go and be betrayed and suffer and be crucified and rise again the third day. Now, remember, that's when Peter is like, no, 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 far be it from me. This is whatever. I'll not, over my dead body. I'm not going to let it happen. And how does Jesus respond? Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou art an offense unto me. Whew. I can tell how determined Jesus is to meet his rendezvous with redemption. Nothing's going to stand in his way. With all that in mind, do you see the language here? He steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. I'm not going to turn aside. Even though this straight and narrow path leads to Gethsemane and Golgotha. Let's go. Now, there's even a verse in Isaiah where he says, I have made my face like flint. I mean, think flint and steel. This makes sparks. It's so unbending. It's just, no. I'm, to have face like flint, that's the face of Jesus Christ. 
I know where I'm going and nothing will get in my way. So get out of my way, Peter. Let's go. And in fact, we're going to take the shortcut. If it was me, I was thinking about this with, with, with Abinadi. When Abinadi tells the wicked, wicked king Noah and the wicked priests, you can't kill me till I'm done with my message. Well, if that's true, I'm probably not going to get around to sharing my full message for a while. <laughs> right? But that's not Jesus. Most Jews, if you're going to go from Galilee up north down to Jerusalem in the south, you would take the long way. Even if you were in kind of a hurry, because the short way is passing straight through Samaria. And ooh, who wants, to, who wants to go through that? I don't even want any Samaritan dust on my feet. Talk about wiping the dust off, right? That's how they feel about this whole, this whole people and this whole, this whole place. So you cross the Jordan, you go on the east side, you go down south, across the Transjordan, and then, I mean, it's a brutal path. Then you got to go across the Jordan at the lowest spot on the earth's surface, basically, below sea level, and then hike up the mountains to get back to Jerusalem. Man, you're putting yourself through all kinds of extra pain just to avoid those pains in the neck known as the Samaritans. Man. It's one thing for... In, in, our, in, the, in the racist history of racist America, to cross the street, to be on the other side of the street from someone that's beneath you. But to cross the country on the other side of the Jordan, there's some problems here. Now, Jesus is not going to do that for a bunch of reasons. Two of the ones that fascinate me here are, number one, my face is steadfastly set to go to Jerusalem. And I'm not going to slow down my path to pain. The other, I have no problem with Samaritans. We saw that back in John chapter 4, right? The Samaritan woman at the well, she's the first one to hear him proclaim the fact that he's the Messiah. Jesus always has good things to say about outsiders. Well, there was that one Syrophoenician woman, but, <laughs> but he changed things after she passed her test, right? So let's go straight on through. Now, here's where the plot thickens. Verse 52, he sent messengers before his face, and they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. And that's normal. I mean, he's going to send people before him to prepare the Passover. It's just like, hey, can you get things set up so by the time I get there, we're ready to go? The problem is, next verse, they, the Samaritans, did not receive him. And here's why. Because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. I mean, they could just see it right on that flint-like face of his. You're not coming to hang out with us, are you? With a Samaritan woman at the well, he stayed for a while and preached to the people. Yeah, he has no problem with Samaritans. But this time, you're not coming to us for us. You're just passing through. Ah, sure enough... What, you, you reverted back to your old Jewishness? And you're, you're just using us as a shortcut. That's it. You want a place to hang your hat for, for the night, and then you're, you're not doing anything for us. You're on to, to your holy place, since Jerusalem is so much more important than Samaria. It's interesting that they are reacting to Jesus with pride from below because they assume that he has pride from above. When he doesn't. I've just got a mission in Jerusalem, and it's for all of you. Okay, I'm there to worship him in spirit and in truth, and to give my life for all humankind. 
including Samaritans. So please, can I stay here before I go back to Jerusalem? Well, absolutely not. Wow. It's amazing how pride from below reacts, even when pride from above isn't present. Well, now there is going to be pride from above, but it's not from Jesus. Verse 54, when his disciples, and not all of them, but two specifically, James and John, and we have to single them out for this. Remember, these are the two, Peter got his nickname, or Simon got his name, nickname, The Rock. James and John got their nicknames too. Remember it? Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Well, thunder always follows lightning. And these sons of thunder want to call down lightning from heaven because they're ticked. And so notice, when James and John saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elias did? Hey, can we destroy them? Huh? Can we? Can we? Huh? I mean, they deserve it. I mean, if you remember Elijah, Elijah was a smack talker, right? Elijah, priest of Baal, it's, we got fire. Yes, we do. We got fire. How about you? Uh, and he's calling down fire from heaven, a lightning strike on the top of Mount Carmel to ignite the sacrifice. And that was only the first example. Later on, there's this story of an army coming to go get Elijah. And they just had some questions for him. But when he sees the army, he's like, God, fire, strike them. And they're consumed in an instant. And then he does it again. He does it again. It's like the, the, poor, <laughs> the poor soldiers that are like, oh, uh, we, we mean no offense, no harm. We just come with a message. Please, you know, look, looking frightfully up for, as clouds are gathering. Elijah called fire down from heaven repeatedly. And now these sons of thunder are looking for lightning of their own. Can we destroy them? These Samaritans. They're just as bad as the priests of Baal. Do they not know who you are? They are so offended for Jesus' sake. And knowing them, if they're still wrestling with <laughs> preeminence, they're probably offended for them, so their, own, their own sake too. But Jesus? Nope, not offended at all. At least not offended by the Samaritans. Perhaps a little offended by James and John. Uh, again, this is the, the, the king who's only angry and feels some wrath at hypocrisy, not the original sin. So, verse 55, Jesus turns. He rebuked them. And I love what he said. Ye know not what manner of spirit ye are of. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Think back to what he told Nicodemus in John 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's verse 16 of John 3. Verse 17 is equally powerful. That he didn't send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. That's why I came. And so the same idea here. I didn't come to destroy even those who don't accept me, I, I'm not trying to destroy them. I'm trying to, if I can maintain higher moral ground, hopefully that will work upon the better angels of their nature. If I can turn the other cheek, hopefully they'll stop smiting cheeks. So let's just turn the other cheek, shall we? I mean, the language he used there of, you know not what manner of spirit ye are of, I love that because it suggests a certain emotional intelligence 
that we can be sufficiently self-aware to know what spirit is moving us at any given time. Remember DNC 121 when he's speaking about priesthood and says you can't just lord your authority over people. You can't force people to obey. No, it has to be meekness and gentleness and love unfeigned. And then he says, now, there, yes, there may be times where you have to flex some of your authority. There may be times when discipline is required, when you have to reprove be times with sharpness. And that sharpness means clarity, not cutting. But notice what he said. When should you do that? When should you reprove be times with sharpness? Oh, when moved upon by the Holy Ghost. And then even as soon as you do that, you give them an out, a greater outpouring of love at the end so that they know that you're not their enemy. But what was moving you? What was calling the shots? It was the Holy Ghost the whole time. That was the spirit that was moving you. Now, sadly, there have been times I have, <laughs> that I have rebuked unrighteousness. Times where I have reproven be times with sharpness. When I was moved by something, but it wasn't the Holy Ghost. When the spirit that I was of, <laughs> to borrow the language of Luke 9, was the spirit of anger, or the spirit of impatience, or the spirit of frustration, or the spirit of pride, not the spirit of the Lord. So the next time we're about to act out of any emotion, May we have the emotional intelligence to interrogate that emotion first and ask ourselves the Lord's question, what manner of spirit am I of? If it truly is the Holy Ghost, then yes, move forward with your reproof. Be clear. And then show them more love than ever. And they'll know that you were moved upon by the Spirit and not by anger. But if you know what spirit you are of and it's not the Holy Ghost, then don't act out of that emotion. What should you do instead? Notice what Jesus does. And I love the end of this story. Verse 56 ends with this phrase. And they went to another village. That's it. <laughs> they just, okay, no, uh, believe me, I've been doing this since I was in the womb. No room for me in the, at those inns. I'll find some other stable. It's okay. Turn the other cheek and now turn to another village. I'm sure someone else will, will open their arms. I love how simple that was. Uh, there was no passing judgment. It was just go elsewhere. It was go catch the fish and pay the tax. Let's not offend anyone. Let's, let's look elsewhere. And that's what Jesus does. He avoids contention. He avoids disputation. He avoids feelings of superiority. So there's no pride from above justifying someone else's pride from below. Now with that, Luke chapter 9 then ends with some stories that we've already studied in other Gospels uh, about people coming to Jesus who want to follow him. His response about foxes have holes, but you want to be homeless like me? Or let the dead bury their dead because we're focusing on spiritual life here. Or don't, put your, don't look back once you put your hand to the plow because we're only moving forward. Our faces are set steadfastly on the path ahead. So amazing things that end chapter 9. But that all then sets the stage for chapter 10. 
with its new material that we really need to study. Now, in the previous, in, in the Matthew versions, all that talk about foxes and holes and, and plows and, and dead burials and everything else comes in conjunction with the, the calling of the 12 apostles. But in the Luke version, it comes in conjunction with the calling of the 70. And, and those are, that's, a, that's a priesthood office that only Luke seems to suggest. Uh, so it's interesting. The, what we see here in Luke chapter 10, verse 1 and 2, after these things, with people wanting to follow and so on, after these things, the Lord appointed other 70 also and sent them two and two before his face into every city and place whither he himself would come. Therefore said he unto them, the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. That is exactly what Matthew recorded before the calling of the twelve. Here it's before the calling of the seventy. But think about the order. Jesus is going forth, but he knows that there's more work to do than what he can accomplish single-handedly. So he gathers these twelve apostles. But he knows that there's, not, there's more work than even the twelve can do. So let's gather these seventy. Let's send the apostles out two by two. Let's send out the seventies two by two. Let them all. I mean, we're starting to see the kingdom of God begin to spread. And I love the thought, even in our day, of multiple quorums of the 70. DNC 107 says it could be this way. As many as are needful, as the work of the, as the labor in the vineyard requires. Oh, and I can't remember how, what are we up to, like 10 or 11? I, I, I lose track of the 70s and the quorums, the number of quorums of the 70, which is a great problem to have. That lets us know that the kingdom really is expanding and, and quickening and picking up speed. But you get the same sense happening here. But I also love what he said. You're all going to go two by two before my face. And wherever you go, it's whither he himself would come. It's kind of like sending those apostles before him to prepare a place to stay in Samaria. Well, these 70s are going forth to prepare places for Jesus to come in their wake which ought to tell us something. Sadly, I, I wonder if we've gotten so oh, used to general authorities uh, that we take them for granted. And when it's time for our state conference, we immediately ask ourselves, well, who's coming? And if it's not an apostle, if it's only a 70, we're kind of disappointed. That's sad. Oh, can we not receive little children in humility, like we saw at the beginning of this week's lesson? To, to be blessed with the presence of a 70, as suggested by these verses at the beginning of Luke 10, the coming of a 70 is a preview of the coming of Christ. I have friends and mentors that serve in the quorums of the 70. And whether those are general authority 70s that we hear from in conference, general conference, or area 70s that we hear for, from in state conference and elsewhere, that's a preview of the coming of Christ. In their attributes, in their actions, in their desire to serve, in their self-sacrifice, I'm so amazed at the goodness of these good men. And when they come... I get a sense that the Savior is waiting in the wings, 
to follow in their footsteps? Have we been sufficiently prepared for His coming by the way we respond to the coming of one of His servants? That's a question worth pondering before every conference. Now from there, the Lord will give the 70 the same kind of counsel He gave to the 12 that that we were introduced to back in Matthew chapter 10. And since we went verse by verse through Matthew chapter 10, I'm not going to go verse by verse through those things here in Luke chapter 9. It's the same kinds of concepts of you'll be lambs among the wolves, that you don't bring purse or script, just trust that people will provide, that when people accept you, leave your blessing. When they reject you, then wipe the dust off your feet and just keep moving forward. But then in verse 16, Jesus says this to the 70. He that heareth you, heareth me. And we're used to that. We saw it earlier in this week's material. We saw it in the oath and covenant of the priesthood, whether by my own voice or the voice of my servants, it is the same. But here, unlike those other spots, he gives the opposite. He that despiseth you, despiseth me. And he that despiseth me, despiseth him that sent me. Wow. That's pretty stark when you hear the the negative version of the oath and covenant of the priesthood. That rejection of God's servants is rejection of God despising. That's some strong stuff. So are we willing to settle for a 70? We better. There's no settling there at all. Next, in verse 17, the 70 returned again with joy. They've been out on these, these missions two by two, and now they're back. And they come back with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. Which is shocking, because he'd specifically promised the 12 that power, but there was no mention of that among the 70. And yet they have it. And they're just amazed. It's like, wow. Now, remember, it's not because of you. It's because of the Lord. But they, it's working. And they realize that. The, the devils are subject unto us. Not that it has anything to do with us. It's through thy name. Now, Jesus responds. He said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Interesting what he says there. It's like, of course you can cast out devils. I cast out the devil himself. And so these minor exorcisms on earth, that's just an echo of what happened in pre-mortality. When I escorted the prince of devils himself out of the presence of God, Satan fell like lightning. And those that are following his, in his footsteps will eventually fall like lightning themselves. Scorpions, serpents, you'll have power over them all. You remember what Isaiah said, no weapon formed against thee shall prosper. That is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. No wonder they seem so unfazed by the opposition that seems to swirl all around them. Next, in verse 20, though, the Lord says, Notwithstanding, so despite all this power that you have through me, notwithstanding in this, rejoice not. I'm glad you came back with joy, but don't be joyful of the fact that, hey, look what I can do to the adversary. No, that's pride on your part. So don't rejoice that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather Rejoice because your names are written in heaven. So no pride in greater power than over evil, but 
joy in being considered good enough to be with God. That he's aware of you. That God would listen to little old me when I minister in his name. That's amazing. That's something worth rejoicing over. Now, speaking of rejoicing, look at verse 21. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in spirit. And I'm so glad he did because we've seen a lot of sighing lately, right? Just worried, will anybody be able to pick up where I leave off when I'm gone? Well, these 70 are giving me hope. And so he is rejoicing in spirit. He said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent the JST says, from them who think they are wise and prudent, <laughs> which is so much more accurate. None of us are really wise or prudent. We just think we are. And if you do think you are, then he's going to hide these truths from you and instead reveal them to the worthy. He says he has revealed them unto babes. Or if we want to follow the same track of the JST from earlier, those who consider themselves babes before God, the humble, the childlike that we met earlier today. He reveals them to those type. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. Here's the Son trusting the Father's will as usual. All things are delivered to me of my Father, he then says. And no man knoweth who the Son is but the Father, and who the Father is but the Son, and he to whom the Son will reveal him. In other words, the only way to really know the Son is through the Father, or at least through the Spirit that the Father sends. And vice versa. The only way to really know the Father is through the Son. If you've seen me, you've seen him, he'll later tell Philip. I think it's beautiful that in this moment, this little pause before we get to the parable, is a moment of joy for Jesus. And his joy is expressed in gratitude to God. And this relationship he has with God, that I reveal him to my followers, he reveals me to his followers, it's... We have each other's backs, just like Jesus has the back of his servants. Now, at that point, verse 23, he turns unto his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things that ye see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see those things which ye see and have not seen them, and to hear those things which ye hear and have not heard them. We saw that same idea back in, what was it, Matthew 12 or 13? Uh, to reiterate it here in Luke, with Luke's help, what glorious times you 70 live in. What glorious times we live in, surrounded by so many 70s, to see the work of the Lord accelerating around the earth. Oh, we ain't seen nothing yet. But what we are seeing are things that prophets from the past prophesied of, rejoiced in, held out hope for, Will we live up to those promises? Now, part of that is going to be living the first great commandment and honoring God. But part of that also is going to be better living the second great commandment. And that's what the Lord gets at in the parable that then takes us almost to the end of this chapter. Verse 25, Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him. Now, a lawyer, this is an expert in religious law. In the scriptures, they're often called scribes. Same thing. Anytime you see a scribe, that's a lawyer. You see a lawyer, that's a scribe. And it's, they know their stuff. There's precedent for everything. And what chapter and verse can I point to? 
Now, if he knows the scriptures so well, no wonder he stands up to tempt Jesus. Now, the Greek for that word tempt can also be translated as test or to try. I mean, I'm an expert in the law. I wonder if Jesus is. How well does he know his scriptures? I mean, he says he's only here to fulfill it, but I don't know. It kind of looks like he's destroying it on occasion. So let's test him. And here's the test. He says, master, and the Greek there can also mean teacher, but maybe he's wondering what Jesus is teaching. Is it true or is it false? But this is what he asks the master teacher. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, if it's the test and a trial of Jesus' knowledge, that suggests that this lawyer knows the answer himself already. Just wants to know, oh, I wonder if Jesus really knows his stuff. And I love what Jesus does because he turns the question right back on him. Jesus said unto him, well, what is written in the law? How readest thou? Now, lovely turns the question back on. You are a lawyer after all, right? You should know. Why are you asking me? You know chapter and verse. Well, what chapter and verse do you want to quote to me here? And the man has some. Verse 27, he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind and thy neighbor as thyself. And Jesus says to him in response, Oh, well done. Thou hast answered right. This do, and thou shalt live. Well done, lawyer. You know your two great commandments. Jesus himself is going to quote them again later in Matthew chapter 22. Uh, but for this lawyer, this scribe, you know your, your Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 5. Well done. That's love God with all your heart, mind, mind, and strength. And you know your Leviticus 19.18, which is love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, we think of those as New Testament laws. No, they're Old Testament laws. Okay? And those who know their Old Testament know that. This man did. But did he? <laughs> did he do or did he just know? Because I love what the Lord says. You're right. You know your stuff. Act on it. This do and ye shall live. Life does not boil down to a jeopardy game. It's a day of discipleship. What will you do based on what you know? Now, you can't say something like that to a lawyer and not have him respond with something to try to, I mean, wait, wait I'm here to test you. Why, why, why are you turning the tables on me? And so, verse 29, he, willing to justify himself, and the Greek there means to render just or innocent. I mean, he's looking for some kind of loophole so he doesn't, he won't look guilty if he's not doing these things. So, okay, let's circumscribe uh, kind of the letter of the law that we're discussing here. And he says to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Okay? Fine, you called me on it. Now, I'm supposed to love God with all my heart, my mind, and strength. Well, for all you know, I am. But loving neighbor... Mm, if I just set a trap for one, if I'm trying to scandalize Jesus and see how much he knows, okay, guilty as charged. Well, maybe not guilty as charged. How can I remain innocent looking? Ooh, let's narrow our definition of neighbor until it becomes so small that, <laughs> that I can offend and scandalize and despise just about anyone. But, I mean, my next door neighbor. I mean, this one, then I can... It reminds me of, you remember when he talked about the tradition of the fathers uh, versus the commandments of God, and you're holding to this so you can chuck the other, and you're designating things Corbin. Oh, that's sorry, Mom and Dad, can't help you with that. That's meant for God, and I'm sure I'll pay it up to him eventually. Same kind of problems here. So how do I earmark? 
If I'm earmarking things meant for others as Corbin just for God, that constricts things. Well, am I earmarking neighbors as non-neighbors so I don't have to love them as myself? My wife has the opposite problem, which means there's no problem. I always joke with her about this because she refers to everyone in our entire neighborhood as our next door neighbor. <laughs> and she'll, somebody will be like, hey, do you know so-and-so? It's like, oh yeah, they're, they're our next door neighbor. And I'm like, honey, no, no, no. Next door is really specific. We only have two next door neighbors. Well, I guess a third, if you want to call the family right behind us, over the fence. But next door neighbor is really specific. They tell them they're our neighbor. Tell them they live in our neighborhood. And my wife just always laughs. She's like, wait, quit being so technical. I'm like, well, you used the technical term. Sorry. <laughs> so what I love about my wife, in, again, don't ask her for directions about who's, who lives nearby us because you, you'll get lost, okay? Or you'll just, everyone will come to the two people alongside us and that's not who you're looking for, okay? But spiritually speaking, I absolutely love my wife's tendency to, to throw the circle wide to the point that I mean, if every neighbor is a next-door neighbor, then every human being is a neighbor as well. This lawyer is trying to do the opposite. Let's confine. My wife wants to expand. So does the Lord. And so he expands here. He's going to teach from verse 30 to 35 the parable of the Good Samaritan. I counted them. and There are only 165 words in the version we have in the King James. But it's amazing how much mileage Jesus could get out of a brief message. I have the opposite problem. I give you way more than 165 words. Sorry, not sorry. But here are the 165 words Jesus gives. Starting in verse 30, Jesus answering said, A certain man, and by starting with, it, with that phrase, we don't know anything about him, nor do we need to. This is every man. This is John Doe or Jane Doe. This is Anyone, including you or me, okay? Just a certain man who went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Pay attention to the direction here. He's going down. Here's a descent from Jerusalem, which is the holy city, down to Jericho, which, oh, that was the first Canaanite city to fall in the conquest, right? Down there by the Jordan River, beneath sea level, the city of Jericho. Well, when he's there, or when he's on the way, I should say, he fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. Oh, he's been through some hard things, but he's only half dead. He's not all dead, which means there's still some hope for him. Good thing, because here comes hope riding in. Verse 31, by chance, oh, it's just by chance. Is this a tender mercy? Is this just luck? And if so, is it good luck or bad luck? And good luck for whom or bad luck for whom? Is this fate? Is this divine design? I don't know. It's just by chance. There came down a certain priest that way. And when he saw him, oh, he passed by on the other side. Like we were talking before about, oh, we've got to avoid Samaritan territory. Let's go across the Jordan and then come up from, Jer from Jericho to Jerusalem. Well, this, he's not going to cross the river, but he's going to cross the way. And so this certain priest passes by on the other side. He's not alone in that because a little later, 
Likewise, a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him. So at least he comes a little closer and starts to examine this poor soul, this victim. But having come and having looked, eh, still, he passed by on the other side, just like the priest had. Now, by the way, if it's a priest and a Levite, are they coming down from Jerusalem to Jericho as well? Or are they coming up from Jericho to Jerusalem? Either way, why are they on a journey? Well, the way the temple ran, we saw this with Zechariah, that you don't stay at the temple all the time. You just hope that sometime in your life, your lucky lot is drawn. And so as there are priests and Levites throughout the kingdom of Israel, when it's their turn to serve in the temple, they come running. Now, has this priest and this Levite, are they on their way to Jerusalem to go serve in the temple? Or have they just finished their service in the temple and they're going back home somewhere around Jericho? Either way, there does seem to be some suggestion that their journey is indicative of temple service because that's what priests and Levites are for. They're God's servants. They took the place of the firstborn. They're supposed to look out for everyone else. They're, they have their own birthright and a responsibility that goes with it to all those around them, including travelers, including the wounded, the suffering. Oh, but I got I to gotta rush on to the temple. Or, oh, I already paid my dues at the temple, and now it's time to go back home and rest. Either way, they do nothing for this poor man. But someone else does. But a certain Samaritan, Jesus says. And you can picture his audience, his lawyer, shuddering with the word. As he journeyed, came where he was, where this man was, his victim. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him. Ah, compassion the thing the king had for the, for the servant that owed him 10,000 talents. The thing the servant didn't have for his fellow servant that only owed him 100 pence. The thing the Samaritan had for this certain man that fell among thieves. And if this certain man was traveling between J Jerusalem and Jericho, that it's almost certain that he was a certain Jew. And a man called it, well, two men called to serve fellow Jews, did nothing to serve him. But a Samaritan has compassion on a Jew? Really? In some ways, we've moved from high to low. We went from priest, that's higher, down to Levite, anyone from the tribe, down, way down, to a, uh, do I even have to say the word? To a Samaritan. Now, we call this parable the parable of the good Samaritan. But for a Jew, that's an oxymoron. The only thing you'd ever say with, the only sentence you'd ever use with good and Samaritan in the same sentence would be to insert a phrase like riddance to those lousy. So it'd be good riddance to those lousy Samaritans. But no, Jesus said, no, it's a good Samaritan. The only one good enough to see someone in need and want to help. In fact, I love the language of, of this passage. If the Levite comes and looks and then passes by, the Samaritan comes and really sees. This is not rubbernecking. This isn't just looking like, oh, I wish I hadn't seen that. 
Especially I wish I hadn't seen it to the point that it pulled on my heartstrings. And now I'm going to feel a little guilty. But i got to rush on to the temple or rush home from the temple. i got more important things to do. And especially if this is the, uh, uh, a scary path on the road and there were thieves here. I mean, look what this man happened to this man. And I mean, he's half dead and I, I, I'm, I might be the next. So i got to rush. I'm sure the priest and Levite came up with plenty of good reasons. Remember the lawyer was seeking ways to justify himself? I'm sure the priest and Levite did as well. But the Samaritan wasn't looking for legal loopholes. He wasn't looking for ways out. He wasn't trying to justify himself at all. He wasn't thinking of himself. He was thinking of this poor man. Maybe if he's been stripped, I can't even tell if he's a Jew or a Samaritan at all. It doesn't matter. He's a fellow human being in need. And maybe I can meet those needs. So in verse 34, he went to him. Let's get even closer. Everyone else seems to go further away, cross the path. This one, no, let's get as close to him as we can. He went to him and bound up his wounds. Let's stop the bleeding. Let's not let you get any worse than what you already are. Let's help you start turning the corner. Because half dead usually leads to all dead if nobody steps in and moves it back to quarter dead and an eighth dead and then not dead at all. He bound up his wounds. He poured in oil and wine. And those are some interesting medicines. You see, wine, if it has alcohol, it, that's going to sting a bit. But it's going to kill germs. There's your antiseptic. And oil, ah, oh, that's smooth. That's going to soothe the pain. It's interesting that most people need a little bit of both. Some kind, something to kill the germ, but also something to, to smooth the hurt. A little justice and a little mercy. A little, a little redemptive hurt and a lot of redemptive help. He knows just what to do with this oil and wine and gives it to this man, though that was probably not what he intended to do with it from the start. But he's willing to sacrifice his own oil, his own wine, for this nameless man that he knows nothing about. Next, he set him on his own beast. Ah, so now what's, where does that leave the Samaritan? Walking. There's more selfless service, inconveniencing himself so that someone else has, can be able to move where he otherwise would not be able to. What does he do with this man on his own beast? He brought him to an inn and didn't just drop him off. He took care of him there, which means he interrupted his own journey. I probably wasn't planning on this, but do we ever plan for, for Good Samaritan kind of moments? Now, on the morrow, when he departed, because he was on a journey from the start, he had to get on with that journey. But knowing that it takes more than a day or a night to heal a half-dead man, he next takes out two pence, so two days' worth of, of earnings, and gave them to the host of this inn, and said unto him, Take care of him. And just in case the two pennies isn't enough, because I, I have no idea just how bad it is for this man. I did what I could, but I don't know how much more is going to be required. So if you need more, first take care of him. And next, whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. When I come again, it seems like a dangerous road. Well, I'm willing to traverse it more than once. Come back to an inn where you know you have a debt, or at least you fear you might. Well, yeah, 
I'm not trying to get away with anything. I'll come back and pay. And he, notice he doesn't establish some kind of limit. He doesn't say, hey, this is two more pence than I planned on spending on some stranger. Uh, or, well, okay, he, it might not be enough to cover his needs, but you got to cap out at like five pence or ten pence. Or He doesn't even cap it out at 10,000 talents. Whatever it takes, this man needs help. And whatever help I can't offer, I'm going to make sure he receives. Love this. This is more than a... This is the parable of the good Samaritan? No, this is the great Samaritan. This is the Samaritan that is among the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. If we're going back to... This is the goat Samaritan. Okay? He's amazing. Now, what's this lawyer going to say about all this? Uh, the law of Moses... Remember where they kept saying... The law of Moses says you can't heal on the Sabbath. And, he, and Jesus is always responding like... The law of Moses says you can get a, take a sheep out of the mire on the Sabbath. And a man is worth more than a sheep. So what's this lawyer going to say about all of this? What's Jesus going to say about him? Verse 36 and 37. Jesus asks the lawyer, Which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? Since that was your original question. Who's the neighbor? Certainly not the next door neighbor, since Samaria, no Samaritan wants to live next door to a Jew or vice versa. But the lawyer knew he was, <laughs> there was only one answer here. And so he gives it. He said, he that showed mercy on him. Notice he couldn't even bring himself to call him the Samaritan. That word never comes out of the lawyer's mouth. No, it's just, ew. well, he, at least he used that personal pronoun. It wasn't it, at least. But he that showed mercy on him. We could have said pity. We could have said compassion. Whatever the word, Jesus then says to the lawyer, Go and do thou likewise. Again, it's not enough to know the right answers. You've got to do the right things. And in your case, lawyer, it's not looking for loopholes whereby you can constrict your definition of neighbor just enough to leave most people on the outside of it. No. It's to see certain people as true neighbors and to establish no limits to what you're willing to do for them. Can you, no wonder this parable is so world famous. No wonder we all know it so well. But to borrow again from Jesus, how good are we at doing it? That's the question. It's actually a question that was asked by a man in the, during the civil rights movement named Clarence Jordan. I love this guy. Years ago in grad school, we were studying different versions of the Bible. And we looked far and wide for not just things like the NIV or the NASB or the KJV or things like that. We found all kinds of versions. And the one that, that captured my imagination was one called the Cotton Patch Bible. And it was translated by Clarence Jordan. Now, Clarence Jordan was a, was a Baptist, born and raised in the rural south in Georgia. And he was born in 1912. That's about the time period of the KKK. Uh, there's some strong racism in the Deep South, and Georgia was Deep South. And Clarence Jordan was a white man, but also a Christian man. And he was confused why his fellow white Christians couldn't act Christian toward the blacks all around them. 
he grew up on a farm and within a hundred yards of his farm was a prison chain gang. And most of the prisoners were African-American and they were kept in cages. And as a young boy, he just would see them and really see them for their humanity and just couldn't make sense. How do I reconcile racism with Christianity? My neighbor seemed to have no problem with it, but Clarence Jordan had a problem with it. Well, when he was old enough to go to college, he went and ended up getting, this is an interesting uh, crossbreed of interests. He got a, a, a bachelor's degree in agriculture. I mean, you're growing up in the rural South, you're gonna farm, and he did. He created a farm later on after graduation. His, his bachelor's was in agriculture. His PhD, yes, he got one, was in New Testament Greek. No wonder his farm, he, na he, he named koinonia, which is the Greek word for community. You see, what he created was a communal interracial farm in the rural South during the civil rights period. This guy had guts and he needed them. Uh, the KKK came and threatened him. There was all kinds of uh, these acts of violence against his farm, but he just kept on farming. And the weeds he was trying to pull were the weeds of racism. Can you see why I love this guy so much? Well, with his PhD in New Testament Greek, he translated the New Testament, but not into any old English. He translated it into the language of the Deep South, racism and all. He's one of my best, my favorite examples of translating ideas and doctrines and meaning and motivation instead of just rendering words from one language to the next. Because when he translated the parable of the Good Samaritan, he turned it into the parable of the Good Black and wanted to push this parable into the faces of his fellow white Southerners sitting there in church on Sunday, knowing the parable of the Good Samaritan, but not doing anything about it toward the people all around them that they looked down upon. You see how applicable this became in Clarence Jordan's hands? Can I read to you his version of the parable of the Good Samaritan? Here it is, start to finish. From the Cotton Patch version, one day a teacher of an adult Bible class got up and tested him with this question. Doctor, what does one do to be saved? Jesus replied, well, what does the Bible say? I should be doing this in a southern accent, shouldn't I? What does the Bible say? How do you interpret it? Well, the teacher answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your physical strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. That is correct, answered Jesus. Make a habit of this and you'll be saved. But the Sunday school teacher, trying to save face, asked, But, or, uh, uh, but, but just who is my neighbor? Then Jesus laid into him, there's some strong emotion here, right? And said, a man was going from Atlanta to Albany, and some gangsters held him up. When they had robbed him of his wallet and brand new suit, they beat him up and drove off in his car, leaving him unconscious on the shoulder of the highway. Now it just so happened that a white preacher was going down that same highway. When he saw the fellow, he stepped on the gas and went scooting by. 
Shortly afterwards, a white gospel song leader came down the road, and when she saw what had happened, she too stepped on the gas. Then, a black man, traveling that way, came upon the fellow, and what he saw moved him to tears. He stopped and bound up his wounds as best he could, drew some water from his water jug to wipe away the blood, and then laid him on the back seat. He drove on into Albany and took him to the hospital and said to the nurse, You all take good care of this white man I found on the highway. Here's the only two dollars I got, but you all keep account of what he owes. And if he can't pay it, I'll settle up with you when I make a payday. Now, if you had been the man held up by the gangsters, which of these three, the white preacher, the white song leader, or the black man, would you consider to have been your neighbor? The teacher of the adult Bible class said, well, why, of course, the I mean, er, well, er, the one who treated me kindly. Jesus said, well then, you get going and start living like that. Did you catch that this white Sunday school teacher came close to using the N-word? Because that's all he perceived this, this black man to be. Not Jesus. To look past color barriers and past ethnic barriers and religious barriers. To stop disputing and contending and comparing and competing. To stop offending and despising. To, stop, to start seeing people for who they, who they really are. Go and do thou likewise. Whoever your other might be, we can be good to them. We can be better than we have been to them. That's what Jesus is asking us to do. In fact, it's what he's been doing all along. I've said this before, just like a picture is worth a thousand words, a symbol is worth a thousand lessons. And so these parables, which are symbolic stories, they're worth a thousand lessons, too. We saw the one Jesus told the, the lawyer. We saw the one that Clarence Jordan told his fellow Southern whites. Do we also see the one, though, that Jesus is telling us as far as the big picture plan of salvation? For this, we owe Jack Welch, or John W. Welch, if you want to get technical, former editor of BYU Studies, the discoverer of chiasmus in the Book of Mormon, a really smart Latter-day Saint. He, uh, he showed this from several cathedrals, Catholic cathedrals in France. And it struck him because he was looking at one of these cathedral windows, the stained glass windows, and saw that there were, the story of the parable of the Good Samaritan was laid out in glass. Right? So many of the parishioners in the Middle Ages were illiterate, plus the Mass was in Latin, so they weren't going to understand it either way. And so for them, their Bible study was Pictionary. And they were taught vis visually from the stained glass windows. 
And there you see the parable of the Good Samaritan played out before you. But above those were an, another set of windows that were meant to, to follow along in parallel. And it was the fall of Adam and Eve and the atonement of Jesus Christ. And Brother Welch just, what, what is the connection here? And the deeper he dug, the more he was blown away by the, the deeper meaning of the parable of the Good Samaritan. It was really in more modern times that people started to limit their understanding of this parable just to do, do a good turn daily, like the Boy Scouts are supposed to, and, and care for those that are all around you. Be a good Samaritan. That's important. It's, it's, it's essential. But throughout much of early Christianity, they saw this not just as some kind of moral tale, but as an allegory. So it wasn't just morality, it was allegory that, that was being taught here. And there was an allegorical reading of the parable of the Good Samaritan that taught the plan of salvation in incredible ways. Origen was one of the earliest of the, the Christian fathers. Uh, had some incredible insights into premortality, for example, and a lot of other doctrines that were lost later in the apostasy. But this was his summary, uh, or his explanation, interpret, allegorical interpretation of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Origen said this, The man who was going down is Adam. Jerusalem is paradise, and Jericho is the world. And that's a pretty amazing connection, since Jerusalem is the city of God. It's at the, the high point of the mountain, but Jericho is down beneath sea level. Talk about descent into a wicked world. So Jerusalem is paradise, Jericho is the world. The robbers are hostile powers. So many different types that we, we run up against that end up stripping us of our raiment, right? Our premortal glory. So the robbers are hostile powers. The priest is the law and the Levite is the prophets. So there's ancient Judaism and their priorities, law of Moses, the law and the prophets. And the Samaritan is Christ. Mm, that tells us something, not just in terms of the goodness of Christ, this good Samaritan, but also how people tend to look at him. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Someone that we despised and rejected. The Samaritan is Christ. Origen continues, the wounds are disobedience. So, so often these are self-inflicted, though there's other problems from the hostile powers as well. The beast is the Lord's body. Oh, that he would lift us and carry us himself. The pandocium, and that's the word he used for that inn. The, the, he calls it a stable even. But that, that place that he brings the man, which accepts all who wish to enter, is the church. That's a great parallel. Where would Jesus take the sufferers? To his church. Trusting the innkeeper would be the type of person that would do anything required to help them. And then further, Origen says, the two denarii, the two pennies that he's going to pay, mean the father and the son. That's an interesting insight. Now, again, if the coins uh, show the head of Caesar on them, and there's two coins, and so there's, there's two men that are being shown, well, this is the father and the son. They look identical like father, like son. Now, the manager of the stable is the head of the church to whom its care has been entrusted. And the fact that the Samaritan promises he will return represents the Savior's second coming. That's beautiful. 
Thank you, Origin. Thank you, Window Maker, for helping us really see. And as the sunlight shines through those stained glass windows, what are we really seeing here? It even makes me rethink the oil and the wine because those are now sacramental emblems. Gethsemane means olive press. And so the oil that Jesus pours into these wounds came at infinite personal cost. The wine, oh, that's easy now, right? Well, now we think sacrament. As Jesus trod the wine press alone and bled from every pore and take this wine in remembrance of my blood which was shed for you. I even wonder about the clothing because if this man was stripped of his raiment, the covering he had, then though it's not mentioned in the parable, one would expect that this good Samaritan, willing to use his own oil and his own wine and his own beast and his own money, probably removed his own robe and covered this man's nakedness in the robes of his own righteousness. The parallels to the plan of salvation are unmistakable once we have eyes to see. And I pray that we can not just see, but do. To be good innkeepers. To make sure there's always room at the inn for anyone that Jesus sends our way. I do trust that he will more than make it up to us when he returns. What a masterpiece. What a way to end chapter 10 of Luke. But that's not where it ends. We have one more story, and in some ways it's a perfect aftermath, perfect echo of some of the lessons learned in the parable of the Good Samaritan. But this is no parable. This is not just a story. This is an actual event. And it involves two of my favorite people in the New Testament, a pair of sisters, Martha and Mary. To see their story, it's a brief one. We see from chapter 10, verse 38, just a few verses until we get to the end of the chapter. But let's meet these two wonderful women that we'll get to know even better when we get to John chapter 11 and see them alongside their brother, Lazarus. But verse 38, now it came to pass as they went, and the they is Jesus and his apostles. Okay, remember, he's always surrounded by crowds, so we, we don't exactly know how big this crowd happens to be, but they're all going, they're all traveling. And as they went that he entered into a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. Now, we just met these two sisters. Did you catch what order we met them in? We always seem to talk about Mary and Martha. Well, originally it was Martha and Mary. And good to put Martha first, since it is her house that this event is taking place in. And that wasn't just a word slipped in there by Luke, because later in the John account of the raising of Lazarus, we'll see again that it's Martha's house. In fact, there's a JST of it. So even by revelation, the Lord wanted to make sure that everyone knew, there's no confusion, this is Martha's house we're talking about. Mary lives there, Lazarus lives there. Anytime he's in Jerusalem, Jesus and his disciples tend to live there too. Uh, this was... She's the equivalent of the Shunammite woman from the Old Testament. Remember, anytime Elisha comes by, the, the Shunammite woman is like, you know, honey, I love this prophet. I'd do anything for him. 
anytime he comes into town, we should let him stay under our roof. Let's make, carve out a little space for him to stay. And so he does. And that's Martha here, aware of the physical needs of people she cares about and will do anything to meet those needs. Sound a little like the Good Samaritan? This is a good woman, a good hostess. She's the type of person I would trust with the inn so that anyone wounded, she probably wouldn't even take the, the man's two pennies. And I mean, you certainly don't owe me anything when you come back. Let me just take care of this. Martha is as good as gold. Remember that. Because this story we sometimes use to rank the sisters. Well, now we're back to where we started this week. Who's the greatest of them all? Who's the greatest apostle? Who's the greatest sister? Can we get past the comparison and the competition and the contention, please? Well, we've got to see a little more contention before we get there. And it's going to come between Martha and her sister Mary, who we just met also. Mary, and what do we see her in doing? She also sat at Jesus' feet. Also means there were other people sitting at his feet. We, a lot of the paintings you'll see, it's Jesus and Mary and Martha. No, you've got to pack the canvas with other people. People among whom Mary is sitting, but people whom Martha is worried about serving. Okay? Have we painted the picture here? Now, verse 40, and we need to go line by line here, phrase by phrase. But Martha was cumbered about much serving and came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Bid her therefore that she help me. Now, phrase by phrase, Martha was cumbered about much serving. The New International Version of that reads, she was distracted by all the preparations. Sound like a hostess? The Contemporary English Version says, she was worried about all that had to be done. Yeah, I would be too. The word cumbered, by the way, comes from a Greek term that literally puts together the term for to pull or to draw and the word for around. Some even translate the idea as dragging something around. And that's how she's feeling. Have you ever been so stressed, so swamped, so buried that you just seem to be dragging things all around you? Or you feel like you're the one being dragged around by all the responsibilities that are weighing you down? That's Martha to a T. And it's hard. It's heavy. No wonder section 66 of the Doctrine and Covenants gives us this brief counsel. Seek not to be cumbered. Yeah, don't try to be dragged about by your to-do list. This is hard, hard stuff. Now, the word here used for serving, she was encumbered about much serving, comes from a Greek word that sounds a little like this. Diakonian. Diakon. Di, wait, deacon? Is that where deacon comes from? Yes. This word for service. In this case, it's more of a temporal service. Oh, that makes sense for deacons. We'll meet more of them in the book of Acts. So they could be male or female, deacons or deaconesses. They helped run the temporal side of church. No wonder deacons is the initiatory uh, office within the Aaronic priesthood, since it's the Aaronic priesthood that deals with the temporal side of the church. It's interesting that in some ways you can see Martha here as the original deacon, deaconess in the Church of Jesus Christ of Ancient Day Saints. And it's like, it's a missionary farewell, and all of a sudden they realize, uh, we don't have enough bread. We're going to have to multiply loaves and fishes. Uh, how are we going to get this for everybody? 
Uh, there's too many chairs we got to set up, and we're going to need the teachers and priests to help out, and maybe even the elders and high priests. We, all hands on deck. And that's how this deaconess is feeling. Martha is overwhelmed with the responsibility she feels because it's her house. It's not Mary's house. In some ways, Martha probably feels responsible to provide and serve Mary as well. And, and Mary had been serving alongside her. Did you catch that phrase? When she goes and says to Jesus, you got to tell my sister, don't you care that she's left me to serve alone? Oh, she left me, which means she had been with me before serving alongside. You never know when Jesus is going to come. Maybe they saw them from a distance, a cloud of dust approaching from the north. And, oh no, that's a lot of dust. Which means it's probably a lot of hungry mouths. And remember what we saw with the loaves and fishes. These apostles and Christ are so busy, they never have enough leisure so as to eat. Which means they're probably going to be hungry and we better start multiplying our loaves and fishes right now. And scrambling to get things ready. And then Jesus comes in the door. And he and his apostles sit and Jesus keeps teaching. And Martha keeps serving. But Mary leaves her sister to join her brethren and to join Jesus. And Martha struggles with that. What's interesting here, she wants her sister's help. She had it before. She no longer has it now. She wants it back. But she doesn't go to her sister. Maybe she was trying to, like, behind Jesus, like, look, you know, hoping that she would catch Martha's attention, like, get her over here. Instead, she goes to Jesus and maybe whispers in his ear, tell, Mark, tell Mary to come back and help. I, I can't do this all by myself. But she added a phrase that I think we need to sit with for a moment. Because the way she phrased it to Jesus, she said, Lord, she knows who's in charge here, but said, dost thou not care that my, that my sister left me to serve alone? We could rephrase that, carest thou not that I perish. I can't do this by myself. And why are you asleep to my needs? I'm not asleep to yours. I'm doing all of this for you. And you don't seem to care. Those apostles on the boat, does Jesus not care about our lives, our danger? To this woman, does he not care about my contribution? And that might be the hardest thing. It's one thing, does he not, is he not aware of my, what, where I'm struggling? But is he not aware of my serving? Does he not, is he ranking things? And my calling isn't as lofty as someone else's, so he probably doesn't even care about what little I do. Carest, do, dost thou not care? That's the real issue. How does the Lord feel about what I'm trying to do for him? Now, verse 41, Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things. And again, it's worth it to go word by word. The first word was Martha, and he said it twice. Why twice? And what, what's his tone? That's the hard part. Without emojis, we don't know how we're supposed to read our texts, right? So without some, some director notes here, how did Jesus say it? Was he equally frustrated that she, as she, with she? Was he matching her emotion? Was, he kind of, was she snapping at him like, don't you even care that she was doing this? And was he snapping back? Martha, Martha, 
I would I doubt that. That's last on my list. I actually even wonder, the tone, was it one of concern and comfort and consolation? Martha. I wonder how slowly he pronounced those two syllables. Or how long a pause there was between those two words. Did he say it a little, did he say it quietly the first time and then louder the second? Or was it vice versa? Was it Martha to get her attention? And once she looked at him, Martha. Or was it quiet the first time? Martha. And she ignored it because she's scrambling, trying to get some more food ready. And a little louder the second time, Martha. Come here. Come here. I, my sweet, beloved sister, you deacon, deaconess, thou art careful and troubled about many things. You got all kinds of irons in the fire, don't you? So many things going on and things to cook and careful, troubled. What do those words mean? By the way, back to the Shunammite woman, the parallels are amazing here. Because the phrase that was used of the Shunammite back in 2 Kings chapter 4, Elisha, realizing all that she's done for him, says to his servant, she hath been careful for us with all this care. Same idea. She's careful. So much care. So much solicitude for our comfort. She's leaving no stone unturned, no detail undone. But careful here, especially careful and troubled here, there's some worry, there's some concern. It's not just what she's doing, it's how she's doing it, okay? And what's interesting, the way it's phrased in other translations, it really opens our eyes. The New International Version, she's worried and upset. The English Standard Version, she's anxious and troubled. The New American Standard Bible, she's worried and bothered. The International Standard Version, worry and fuss. And the New Living Translation says at the end, over all these details. It's like details, details. I can't keep up with everything. Now, the carefulness here suggests a level of anxiety that is just too much. It's careful and troubled. It's over-anxious. And the interesting thing here, back we talked about this briefly in Matthew chapter 6, Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says over and over and over, like six verses in a row, basically, he says, take no thought about what you're going to eat. I provide for the birds of the field, uh, the birds of the air. Take no thought for what you'll wear. I provide for the lilies of the field. Take no thought what you'll say beforehand. Just open your mouth and it shall be filled. Now again, when we talked about that, take no thought. He's not saying be clueless and thoughtless. No, be prepared. But don't be over-anxious. Don't be paralyzed by the stuff that's weighing you down and troubling you with all this worry and fuss. And it's the exact same Greek word used here for the carefulness of Martha. Martha, Martha. Take no thought for how you will provide for us. The Lord will provide whenever we need it. It's okay. Granted, he often provides to, uh, for us through you, and I'm so grateful. But you don't have to be alone 
and feel that you're the only one that can do the things that I'm asking. There are fellow disciples and fellow servants and they have compassion just like you do. Maybe you should have a little more compassion for your sister. After all, this being troubled, are you troubled about me and our needs? Are you troubled about your sister? Do you want to get your sister in trouble? Is kind of what I'm asking. Because Martha, you started this whole thing. I didn't say anything against you. I wasn't complaining like, Martha, Martha, where's the food? No, I didn't say anything to you or anything about your sister or no complaints, no comparison on my part. You made the comparison and turned it into some kind of competition and came to me with your complaint. A little bit of criticism there about your sister's choice. You're troubled. The words there can suggest disturbed and terrified and panic-stricken. It can be that strong. The Greek word is sometimes used to describe crowds in a frenzy. Or later in the book of Acts, it will describe a city that's in an uproar. That's, I mean, maybe she's trying to keep her cool on the outside, but on the inside, that's what Martha is feeling. An uproar, a frenzy, careful, troubled, over-anxious. Martha, Martha, it's okay. We're okay. <laughs> Mary's okay. You're okay. It's all good. Then verse 42 such a famous passage. But one thing is needful, Jesus says to her. Just one. And Mary, your sister that you're comparing yourself to, hath chosen that good part, which shall not be taken away from her. You see, that's the problem. You were trying to take it away from her. You were comparing yourself and competing with her and wanting to stop her from making the choice that she made. You thought your choice was better. And, and up until the point I got here, it probably was. I'm sorry I didn't send servants ahead. I, I tried that with the Samaritans. It didn't go so well. I, it, it would have gone better with you. And forgive me if I didn't give you enough advanced warning. And you were scrambling and Mary was scrambling alongside you. But once I came, did you not see I'm not scrambling and I'm okay? If we need to wait a little longer for dinner, in fact, we're happy to help. Uh, but I was in the middle of teaching something, and Mary recognized that and dropped what she was doing to come and hear. Because dinner can wait, but sometimes an important lesson can't. So do not try to take away from her her choice. I'm not taking away from you your choice. Notice Mary wasn't complaining like, Martha, what are you doing? Don't you see this is more important? Get over here. Even more, Jesus didn't turn around like, Martha, do my lessons mean nothing to you? What are you doing getting, keeping your hand in the dough? I'm trying to mix the leaven here, so get over here and watch it rise. Nope. I didn't judge you as less. I didn't judge her as more. I just, I didn't judge just kind of let people do their thing. I'm just here teaching. But since you are putting down Martha, Mary's choice, allow me to raise it. And I'm not raising it, I'm not trying to raise it in comparison to you. I'm trying to raise it back to where you lowered it. I think too often we automatically assume that what Jesus said here is that Mary chose the better part. According to the King James translators, at least. No, she just chose that part 
good part. That part as opposed to this part. Mary chose that. Martha, you chose this. That's fine. Uh, that, part, that part was good. It doesn't necessarily make it better or best. And even if it did, sometimes that's just situation specific. I'll get back to that in just a moment. And she chose that good part. It is just a part, after all. A part of discipleship is learning from me. But a part of discipleship is going out and serving your neighbor also. In a way, your sister chose to keep the first great commandment in this moment, as soon as I walked in the door. You were continuing to keep the second great commandment, which is a great commandment too. It's like unto the first. And again, maybe it's just a sense of timing of when to pivot from one to the other. I'm not trying to take anything away from your contribution, Martha. I just wish you weren't trying to take away anything from Mary's contribution either. Now, speaking of contributions, I, I, I hope this is helping, by the way. I, I love these two sisters. When I teach women in the scriptures, we spend a lot of time with Mary and Martha and really wrestle with their differences. And, and sibling rivalry plays into this. And are these, we saw Martha as the, equivalent, the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament Shunammite. Do we also see them as potential New Testament parallels or echoes of the Old Testament Rachel and Leah? Because those are a pair of sisters with real comparison and competition and contention going on. Remember? Well, Mary and Martha, I think so often this story is used to applaud the Marys of our world, in, our, in our lives and encourage us to be more Mary-like in our discipleship. I know as a kid, my, my mom sometimes felt, or at least acted like she felt, condemned by this, this story. I remember one time uh, the house wasn't clean. And it was our fault, not hers. But she was frustrated and at one point expressed that frustration. And it was like, I, I can't raise children that can clean up after themselves. And what kind of a mother am I? And, and I was old enough at the time, I was a late teenager, that I knew my New Testament. I knew my Luke 10. And so I said to my mom, Mom, first of all, it's us. It's not you. But secondly, I would take your Mary-like discipleship over your Martha-like concerns any day. Maybe you didn't raise us to be neat freaks. And again, that's on us, because she tried, believe me. <laughs> but you raised us to care about the things of God. And for that, I will forever be grateful, Mom. I'm grateful for a mother who was a Mary through and through. I'm grateful for a wife that is a Mary through and through. And a grandma, that, grandmas that were Marys through and through. But here's the thing. They're Marthas too. And when I look back to that time with my mother, she was an incredible Martha. And you know what? Sometimes Martha is exactly who you need. And so... If you're ever, you sisters especially, if you're ever, though the, the, the story applies to brethren as well, don't get me wrong, okay? We all need to learn lessons on discipleship from these sisters, not just lessons on sisterhood or womanhood or anything like that, okay? This is a lesson for us all. But if you are sometimes feeling like your contributions are not cared for, the same as others, realize that so, much, so often it's a matter of time and timing. Because sometimes Martha is exactly who you need. Let me give you some examples. What had Jesus just taught before we shifted to this 
part of Luke 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Who was he more like, Mary or Martha? He didn't oh, unsaddle his, his donkey and get off and, and sit down next to this poor suffering Jew and say, let me tell you, let me teach you some doctrine. It's like, actually, I'd much prefer your oil and wine. It wasn't, he didn't preach sermons to him. No, he took him to the inn and said, could you do some physical help for this, this man? He needs, some, he needs a Martha here. If Mary was at the inn, maybe she's not at the inn at all. She's off listening to a preacher somewhere. It's going to be Martha that's going to be helping this, this man heal. Or how about this story? Feeding the 5,000? Jesus had been Mary all day long. And the apostles thought that should have been enough. Send them away. They're starting to get hungry. We don't have anything for them. You've been providing for them. You've been giving them the bread of life all day long. So now let them go. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. Mary time is over and Martha time is now. Feed them. Let's go multiply loaves and fishes, shall we? Or one of my favorite examples, and this one's almost funny to me. We'll see it in a later week. When Jesus curses the fig tree, okay? Strange story. Jesus bringing death instead of life. That seems odd. But what's the story behind it? Well, the fig, the fig tree had leaves, but no fruit. And it says that Jesus was hungry. Now it says, here's some other details though. He's hungry, he wants figs. He wants, that sounds normal, and it should have had it if there's leaves. We'll, we'll study that story later. But two other details. This fig tree was on the way between Bethany and Jerusalem. And Jesus is walking from Bethany to Jerusalem when he passes it. Now, guess why he's in Bethany and, and on his way to Jerusalem? Because Bethany is, when Mar is where Martha's house is. It's where he would normally stay when he's in Jerusalem. In other words, he just left Martha's house. One other detail. It says it was in the morning. Now, if you just left the house where you're staying, and we're not talking like some massive journey, it's just a, a couple of miles, and you go from, from Martha's house to Jerusalem, and in the morning when he just left Martha's house, he's already hungry? That's where I scratch my head and go, Martha, where was breakfast? Why, why is Jesus hungry already when like, he's just like a mile away from your house? And I just laugh sometimes. I, I picture Martha, if she ever wanted to get snarky, Waking up in the morning and just sitting on the, on the stone floor or there in the dirt or on a chair somewhere when it's breakfast time and Jesus comes up and the apostles are rubbing their eyes and like, hey, Martha, what's for breakfast? And she just smiles and says, the bread of life. Got a lesson for me? Now, again, I don't, Martha is not snarky like I've just <laughs> painted that picture. But I do wonder where, where breakfast was that day. Uh, was Mary in charge? And it was just, we got to, I'm here to learn. Like I said, there are times that Martha is exactly the disciple that we need. And usually that will be situation specific. This is a chance for me to say, as I so often do, that we have to prove contraries. And one of the reasons that I love these sisters so much is they're a perfect pair of contraries themselves. And uh, like we talk about the difference between form and function. We kind of see some of these differences here. We see the difference, the contrary between the temporal and the spiritual. That Martha was at this point concerned with the temporal, when Mary at this point was concerned with the spiritual. You can even do a contrary between the Aaronic and Melchizedek priesthood, since Aaronic is more temporal and Melchizedek ordinances are more spiritual. 
It's really interesting. It makes Martha the poster girl for the Aaronic priesthood and Mary the poster girl for the Melchizedek priesthood. Fascinating. She, Martha is the deaconess, after all, right? To, to borrow the Greek word. Maybe I can just boil it down to this. Sometimes love is more important than a lesson. Sometimes helping does more than hoping. Sometimes a casserole is more helpful than a class. This is hard for me to say as a teacher, but it's true. Sometimes a piece of bread goes further than a priesthood blessing. Maybe the person before you needs your fast offerings more than just your fasting. At this point, maybe service is more convincing than a sermon could ever be. Uh, like I said, timing often is what determines which side of the contrary we need to lean into. It helps us know at this moment what is the one thing that is needful. What's the good part that in this moment would be the better or best part of, of whatever I could do? Sometimes it's a time to serve. And other times it's a time just to sit, to listen and learn. Is this a time to work or is this a time to worship? The Holy Ghost will have to let you know. Is this a time for donations or a time for devotions to be paid to the Most High? In short, is it a time for Martha or a time for Mary? My prayer for each of us is that we develop both sides, both parts. And that these two sisters become one in each of us. Jesus is the perfect combination of the two, and we need to become that as well. As I said, the Holy Ghost will let us know. The Spirit will tell us, in the moment, lean more on your Martha side, or this, at this point, it's time for Mary to come through. We'll see more of their differences when their brother dies. They have different ways of living, and they have different ways of mourning, and both ways are okay. After all, we're not here to compare ourselves to one another. We're not here to compete. We're not here to contend. We're here to come unto Christ. And he who truly is the greatest of all is trying to help us become a little greater, a little more like him. And so if you're a Samaritan, be a good one. If you're a sister, be the best you can be. If you're a disciple, come unto Christ. And stop comparing yourself to whatever any other disciple chooses to do. The race, Elder Holland has said, is not against each other. It's against sin. And through the Savior, Jesus Christ, we can overcome it. I testify of that. I testify of him.